A good Monday morning to you, Real Talkers, at 8.30 on this February 8th. That's 8.30 Mountain Time, 10.30 Eastern. Thanks for joining us. If you're watching this live on YouTube, a good morning to you, Real Talkers. What a weekend it's been. Now, of course, it depends where you're watching us from, but uh, if you're if you're tuning in or if you're catching this podcast later in Western Canada, uh, let me say on the Prairie Provinces, chances are that you are uh, experiencing the type of cold, the type of frigid cold that we only experience one or two weeks a year. Uh, if, if you're taking this show in from from elsewhere, including, uh, you know, the other day, Andrea Ross that reached out and, and posted a, just a beautiful photo. I, I believe it was maybe she was walking along the seawall in Vancouver or something like that. Um, Sam G. Brooks, the technical producer of this show, just rolling his eyes. I did the same well, thing. I, I have it on good accord that Andrea is an avid skier. So, yes. I mean, she's probably missing some things about Alberta. Well, yeah, I don't know if she's missing, uh, you know, with, with a wind chill get, dipping into the minus That's 40s. fair. I don't think anybody's missing that. But I, I responded to her. She posted a, a photo of, you know, it just like looked like mild temps, uh, you know, just sort of a very walkable conditions. Nobody wearing a jacket. And I said, yeah, yeah. You know, I responded to her photo. Yeah, yeah. And she said, well, if it makes you feel any better, she says, I'm, I'm listening to the Real Talk podcast. And I said, that makes actually that makes everything better. So a shout out to all uh, uh, those Real Talkers that are catching the podcast after the fact from from who knows where. We know that we have regular viewers that are tuning in from from Costa Rica. I mean, other locales where they're probably hearing the surf. You know, they probably have their annoying factors at play as well. I mean, the, you know, I, I bet you that some of our our viewers in Costa Rica are probably, you know, dealing with issues we don't even think about, like like tracking sand into the room. They probably go out to to take the garbage out. They get sand on the bottom of their feet. They, they bring that in onto the tile or the hardwood floor. I have to wipe my dog's paws off every time she comes in the in the house. I, I would have to be wiping, picking sand out of her fur. Very, I don't want to do that. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. yeah I mean, that, that sounds like a nightmare. So actually, we're quite lucky uh, to be in a situation right now that we're in. It's a good um, positive spin. There. You know, we've we've just realized about 15 minutes ago that that the uh, the building that the real that houses the Real Talk studio it just, it has its water off this morning. Now, we don't know if that's a burst pipe or that's another. It is extreme times, ladies and gentlemen. These are extreme times and we'll be here through it all together. We've got a great show coming up in, in just a moment. It's a busy Monday morning. We're going to be sort of moving at a at a frenetic clip to a certain degree, moving from one interview to another. And we're going to kick off with political science professor uh, and notable Canadian. He's a, he's an expert on Canadian history and politics. And, and we wanted to reach out to Professor Emmett McFarland when we started talking about Canada's next governor general. Of course, we don't have to tell you that Julie Payette resigned from her position amid some controversy. And now the prime minister, of course, will be looking to to make a choice that will have the support of Canadians, a choice that he can stand by, and, and maybe a choice that will remove some of the questions around the previous choice he made. People saying, hey, there was sort of a long history here, whether they were allegations or otherwise, around uh, former Governor General Payette's you know, conduct in the workplace and how she treated her colleagues and coworkers and subordinates. And you know, why didn't the prime minister pay attention to this? It's got some people asking, should we even have a a governor general is it maybe we should phase it out is that even possible we'll ask him at that and more uh, a little later on today we're going to be getting into some of your emails we're going to be taking uh, on other some of the news headlines of the day and including some of the things that are probably flying under the radar a little bit and that's a, a big role that real talk can play here 
with regards to covering stories and providing meaningful dialogue around stories that maybe aren't necessarily leading the news headlines. Doesn't mean that they're not important stories. Doesn't mean that people don't care about them. We're going to get into our Y Station question of the week, the results uh, way over. You know, I mean, it, it was interesting to see, um, you know, more than a thousand of you return. We asked you for the first time to take part in a bit of a double whammy question of the week. It was the playoff bracket to see who real talkers wanted to name as Canada's governor general. And we'll get into those results in just a moment. Uh, by the way, also making news right now, Bitcoin. And we're going to be talking to the CEO of Bitcoin. Well, Adam O'Brien, a little later on this week, Bitcoin and Tesla are both just wow taking off right now we'll get adam's take on that bitcoin well of course is the title sponsor of real talk and they're proud to be there they've been there since the beginning if you're looking for someone to help you make sense of cryptocurrency you know before you take the plunge so to speak if you're looking to buy or sell or or set up a bitcoin wallet you've heard about these but you don't even know what it means the team at bitcoin well is ready to help you out they're proudly headquartered out of edmonton they've got atms across canada and this year they're going public. That's a story we're keeping an eye on. You can find them under the sponsors tab at ryanjesperson.com. Real talk starts right now. Here's Ryan Jesperson. We'll get to Emmett McFarlane in just a second. Uh, we asked you last week to swing on by ryanjesperson.com as, as uh, you know, depending on the week between, you know, 1,500 and 2,000 of you do and answer our question of the week. And this past week, uh, our friends at Y Station, they're the official research and strategy partner of Real Talk, had some fun with a playoff bracket. And they asked you to, to narrow down your choices. So, for example, on the celebrity side, you had to pick right out of the gates between Ryan Gosling and Ryan Reynolds. Whereas on the more serious side, we gave you some options, you know, with, with apologies to the two Ryans, some options of, of Canadians that could very well be considered for the role of governor general. And we had you narrow it down. We're going to put these results in front of our uh, leadoff guest in just a moment. But why don't we take a look here at, at some of our division winners? So once these these the bracket was pared down uh this is what you told us you wanted to see develop the storylines you wanted to see develop so so here for example you can see in the cbc division chris hadfield did very well uh, with 40 percent of the vote beverly mclaughlin former chief justice 32 percent uh, nipping at his heels how about the former president of the university of alberta indira samir sakira did relatively well 15 percent of the vote our author margaret atwood with 13 percent uh, there in the E-Talk division, Lauren Cardinal did very well. That was Sam ultimately. I think that was your vote all the way I, I through, think that wasn't was my, it? Well, uh, to to be fair, and I will I will you know mention this is that I uh, I, I I I didn't do the first round, so I just did the second round. Okay. So he was my vote all the way through. He was my winner, picking up from like the Got final it. eight. Okay, so from the final eight, you had Lauren Cardinal going all the way. Correct. Uh, I mean, if you look at where he stacked up here, vote wise, very similar to where Chris Hadfield was at. Uh, Ryan Reynolds did all right, uh, winning the battle of the two Ryans, if nothing else, with 24%. How about Dan Levy, Saturday Night Live host, 21%. Sandra Oh, the actor, 15%. Not bad from uh, Grey's Anatomy. Now, when it came to who should be our next governor general, here are the final results. Real talkers. You had Chris Hadfield, former astronaut. You want to see Canada go back to back with former astronauts from Julie Payette to Chris Hadfield, Beverly McLaughlin in second, and Dearest Samaritan in third. And then you have that list. You see how that all played down when they got stacked up against one another. Uh, it's it's when the authors and the entertainers uh, start to start the movie stars start to fall off. And Chris Hadfield, Beverly McLaughlin, and Indira Samara Sakira, former 
university president, University of Alberta, an interesting top three. Let's see what our guest makes of this. Uh, Emmett McFarland's an associate professor of political science at the University of Waterloo. His research focuses on Canadian politics, constitutional law and public policy. Uh, Emmett, it's great to have you on the show and thanks for making time for us. Thank you for having me. Good to be here. So, so some interesting stuff there for you to consider. We, I'm going to get into some of the comments that our viewers made on the poll. Some of them said, oh, this was fun. Some of them said, this is ridiculous. This has no bearing on what's actually going to happen. This is an insult to our intelligence. What do you make of what you saw there? I mean, I think there's some interesting results uh, and certainly some some interesting names. I think, you know, in my view, the best option might be someone Canadians have never heard of someone who has kind of spent their lives uh, doing good public service, but who hasn't necessarily captured a degree of celebrity um, or fame. Um, you know, a lot of recent governors general have been former journalists, former political operatives or, or, or even partisans. Um, I, my preference would probably be for someone who is not really seeking a limelight and hasn't sought it in the past. Um, although, you know, that said, some of the names on that list are certainly people who who have demonstrated good judgment in the past. Um, and as, as long as we have a vetting process that matches the import of the office, uh, I'm sure we would be fine. Yeah, well, I wanted to get into that process with you, and, and, and I know that you'll be able to help us understand what's changed and, and you know, what, what it looks like with the actual process of, of picking and choosing here. But why don't we get into what got us to this point? Uh, which ultimately is this this investigation or this review uh, of allegations that had been made against former Governor General Julie Payette and ultimately her meeting with Prime Minister Trudeau that led to her resignation, which is the official explanation of how it all went down. Uh, where's your head at on on this? Right? Were you surprised to see this story write itself the way that it did? Um, you know, part of me was surprised that she wasn't urged to leave the office even earlier. Um, you know, this is a governor general who had a series of stories over the years that did not reflect well upon the office. There were questions about her desire to even do the workload that is normally associated with the office in terms of number of events. Uh, there were questions about her willingness to do even pro forma things in a timely manner, like sign off on appointments and and other other documents that the governor general usually has to sign off on um and there were there were questions about um you know this this toxic workplace that have you know really emerged more than a year ago and is only upon this kind of report uh that shed more light on some of the specific details uh where she seemed to finally uh admit enough was enough and and decide to resign Emmett, this might seem like an obvious or a question with an obvious answer, but why was it so important that she did resign? I mean, ultimately, this looks bad on the prime minister. Does it does it get to the point where it starts to reflect poorly on on the queen or on the relationship between the monarchy? And I mean, can, can does it go that high level to a point where this could have been causing issues that the average Canadian might not even be thinking about? Certainly, the certainly it reflects poorly on the office itself, um, and this is really a linchpin of our constitutional system. Um, the fact that the office is largely symbolic, um, that there's so much ceremonial uh, aspect to it, is one thing, and you want someone who is kind of above any ill repute in that type of a role. 
Um, but in, in, in other circumstances, the governor general is serving as a constitutional umpire or referee um, in, in a manner not unlike the Supreme Court, except um, that she oversees core aspects of the, the constitutional conventions of our system. And that includes everything from deciding a, about a government that may need to be dismissed if it has lost confidence um, or questions about government formation. Um, who should actually become the next prime minister if there is a close election and it's not really clear who um, ought to be able to, to, to take the reins? Uh, these are fundamental questions that you want someone who um, is recognized across the country and across the political aisle as having good judgment. And so having a governor general that demonstrated poor judgment in, in several different ways can be very damaging to, to that office. And the nature of the office as unelected means that the accountability structure is kind of complicated. And, and it only works if, um, you know, both the prime minister uh, is, is willing to draw a line in the sand when, when conduct becomes um, unacceptable. Um, and you don't want to reach a situation where the prime minister is calling the queen to appoint a new governor general uh, in, in that type of situation. So I was glad to see that the resignation finally happened when it did. Emmett, has, is this a, an unprecedented scenario? I mean, I sort of try to think back and my memory would be limited, admittedly, but I, to think of governors general that found themselves in the news making the news, it, it would be quite unusual, wouldn't it? Yeah, I mean, we've had governors general leave office early. Uh, past governors general have died in office. Um, some have have resigned due to health reasons or at least left early due to, to health reasons. This is unprecedented. Having a, having a, a sitting governor general resign in scandal is 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 a new is a new one for Canada. For so sure. there's so the process here, uh, this this vice regal appointments commission that the liberals got rid of. How does this impact or how do you forecast this might impact the choice moving forward? And is, is it good or is it maybe not good for Canadians? Yeah, I mean, I think I think the problem with getting rid of the advisory council on, on vice regal appointments was that the the liberal government under Justin Trudeau was actually actively creating new independent advisory commissions for appointments to the Supreme Court of Canada, appointments to the Senate. And yet in this one area, they actually got rid of a short-lived uh, committee that was only, only created under the Harper government and decided to go ahead and make an appointment for governor general that really I think the thinking was that Julie Payette aligned with their brand, that this that this appointment was an attractive appointment from a political and even even a partisan perspective because um, it 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 fits their overall identity and it sent that type of a message to Canadians. And it's clear that they didn't do the vetting uh, that was required because some of these issues relating to Julie Payette. Um, were apparent from her past, from her previous jobs. Um, and, and only only a minimal amount of vetting would have kind of uncovered some some red flags, I think. And so would the, you know, it's hard to really assess how the advisory commission would have worked if it had been able to continue. Um, but we probably would have had less 
um, of those type of branding considerations involved in the appointment um, and, and possibly uh, arrived at a, a, a less uh, a less politically attractive, but but more boring and more safe uh, option at the end of the day. <laughs> yeah, so sometimes boring and safe is the best choice. Uh, we're talking to Emmett McFarland, a professor at the University of Waterloo. Emmett, check this out. Uh, we asked uh, our real talkers responding to our question of the week, you know, all said, do you believe that we need a governor general at all? Look at this. 43% said, yes, it's an important part of uh, Canadian governance. 41% said, no, it's outdated and unnecessarily ceremonial. 16% said, yeah, I don't know. What do you make of the numbers? It's it's almost a dead split. Yeah, I mean, some of it is, let's be honest, a, a lot of Canadians rightly don't spend a lot of time thinking about the governor general and many don't really under fully understand the role and its place in our system. And I think a lot of people tie it to directly to the British monarchy and the royal family, right? And so our institutional structure, I think is a bit distinct from the question of whether this, this British quote unquote foreign royal family has much relevance for Canada. I think if you were to focus on the latter, the answer is almost certainly no. Um, but if you focus on the role of the governor general in our institutions, it seems to have functioned quite well. Um, and I think that's that's kind of ref that I, that's reflective in that that split in your poll there. Um, the idea that it, it kind of depends on how you look at it will really inform what you end up thinking about it. So where do you ultimately see this going? I mean, do you do you, uh, you you've made a couple of notes where you said you think maybe at this point you, you've you've referenced sort of the idea of a, of a boring or safe or steady choice, maybe somebody that can fulfill the requirements of the office uh, outside of the limelight or at least having come up outside of the context of uh, some form of Canadian celebrity. Um, do you have any lead on this or do you have a direction you think that this might go any speculation around who might be named to this post? Not in terms of specific names, I don't. Um, I think they're going to want to find um, someone, again, who doesn't have any skeletons in their closet. So I, I would imagine the due diligence will be ramped up exponentially here. Um, it wouldn't surprise me to see uh, this prime minister select a, win a woman for the role. Um, but beyond that, uh, I have no sense of, of any names, and I'm, I am kind of hoping it's someone that a lot of Canadians has never heard of for, for those reasons. Emmett, before we let you go, uh, generally speaking, probably, you know, the biggest story in Canada right now, at least in, in the context of federal politics, might be, you know, vaccine procurement distribution to the provinces. Uh, the opposition's criticizing the government for for how the process has gone. Uh, there's been some talk about uh, Canadian companies developing manufacturing here in Canada. Critics saying we're behind the curve on that. If that was one of the initiatives we're going to pursue, we should have done it a long time ago. Generally speaking, you're you're a political watcher, a political commentator. What's your assessment of how the federal government's done here, and and how would you assess the current relationships between the provinces and Ottawa? I mean, on on vaccine procurement, it's it's not necessarily an easy thing to gauge and assess because it's hard to know how late in the game Canada got in on some of these contracts and whether that has impacted. Uh, the, the numbers of vaccines we've been able to receive and how much is just out of the government's control. Uh, you know, the European Union deciding to, to kind of put export controls on, on vaccines 
Um, I don't think another government uh, would have necessarily been able to do much about that if if they were in uh, the liberal shoes. So it's hard to assess it. it you know, there is increasingly over this pandemic, we've seen particularly the provinces try to put a little more blame on the federal government. Um, and there's, you know, some worry that some of that is actually trying to deflect some of what has gone on, gone wrong at the provincial level, right? So it's it's very convenient for Doug Ford and Jason Kenney to go after Justin Trudeau on vaccines when they allowed the the second wave to really em emerge full throttle without having put any restrictions at the provincial level to try to stop them in the first place. So in the in the early goings of the pandemic, we saw that intergovernmental relations were almost friendly, right? There was cooperation. Uh, Doug Ford was complimenting Christia Freeland. Um, and some of that has now been worn down as we as we realize kind of how long this this is going to drag on. And, and it's back to a bit of a status quo of, of buck passing and, and blaming on, on both sides. How are you how are you managing your day to day affairs these days with regard? I mean, there's there's big stories uh, in certain provinces, Ontario, among them that are that are reopening to a certain degree. Um, Alberta's reopening a bunch of stuff uh, today. Uh, this amid these new strains and what people are some people saying they're bracing for a third wave uh, at a personal level. Uh, how are you making your decisions? Well, we have a four-year-old at home. We had decided in the fall not to not to let her start junior kindergarten at school. So she has been doing remote junior kindergarten on on her tablet since September. Uh, we are in some ways lucky to be able to do that. We're both um, my my wife is also a professor. We, we can both work from home, but we are we're splitting our days. So I'm, you know, in terms of work, I'm at half capacity because half of my day is spent with my daughter. We kind of plan for that to continue for these next few months until hopefully vaccines ramp up. And otherwise, we just try to, you know, stay at home and and not engage in unnecessary activity. And we kind of wish all Ontarians would do that uh, as much as they can. Can, can we assume we always like to ask our guests about their Zoom backgrounds? Is that the brilliance of your of your daughter behind you? Is that a is that a cactus? <laughs> Good guess. It is actually a dragon, a, dragon. a fire breathing dragon. Oh, and yes, yeah. that is uh, that is some of her her artwork. I can see it there. Well, there you go. It's beautifully done. Emmett McFarland, uh, in addition to being a proud papa uh, and associate professor of political science uh, with a specialty in Canadian politics, constitutional law and public policy at the University of Waterloo. Uh, been looking forward to talking to you for a long time. Thanks for doing the show. We appreciate it. Thank you for having me. You bet. Uh, taking a look at... Uh, what real talkers are saying here on the on the live chat i see you know some people are, are nominating their own um there was a write-in option on our question of the week last week uh, presented by y station want to let you know that of the names that were excluded on this actually you know what i'm going to do i'm going to do what they teach us to do in broadcasting school i'm going to say in a minute we're going to get it in a minute we're going to tell you who the top write-in candidate was. In other Leave words, not listed more. on the bracket. Yeah, hook. Uh, but right now, we want to remind you uh, that the team at Dairy Queen 
has you covered at their six locations in Northwest Edmonton and Sherwood Park. Covered for what, you ask? Covered for Valentine's Day, which is going to be here before you know it in less than a week. So if you would love to make the day of your loved ones, swing on by one of these six Dairy Queens, Northwest Edmonton and Sherwood Park and pick up one of these Cupid Cakes. It's a two-person shareable Blizzard cake for $16.49. That's right, less than $17 all the way up to Valentine's Day. The flavors are Red Velvet Cake, Choco Cherry Love, and Oreo, available, as mentioned, all the way up to February 14th. Also want to give a shout out to all of the viewers, the listeners that are tagging us in your tweets, your photos, that your clean air club packages have arrived at your front door. Got another couple of them yesterday. Those of you that have signed up at cleanairclub.ca to get your furnace filters, to stay on track, to make sure that you save money and your family breathes easier. We love knowing that you're doing that for yourself, that you're cleaning up the air in your house by taking that simple step. And we love knowing that you're supporting a business that's supporting this. This show. So keep the tweets, keep the photos coming, and again, you can sign up there at cleanairclub.ca. So as mentioned, the new question of the week is up. This week, we're asking you about Wall Street. We're asking you about cryptocurrency. We're asking you about your confidence in the markets. You can find that question, of course, all of this prompted by the GameStop story. The question ready to be answered as of right now at ryanjesperson.com under the question of the week. But Sam, it was interesting to see. So the top write-in nominee, in other words, not listed on our bracket, but written in by the most uh, Real Talk viewers and listeners was Rick Hansen. I'm not surprised in the least. I'm, I'm not, no. And I mean, that came up a lot yesterday, too. Uh, we were also talking a lot about how uh, I think Murray Sinclair was also a very popular write-in as well. Yeah, right? Murray Sinclair, uh, Rick Hansen. It was interesting Rick Mercer to see. was another really, really popular Rick one. Rick Mercer, yeah. yeah. I wonder if, you know, Rick Mercer is one of those guys where he, he you know, he's made his career as an entertainer, uh, very articulate, intelligent, but you can also see him. I think he would be, I think he, he would shine incredibly in that role. Like for people that would say, well, he's, he's, a, he's a comedian. Would he bring enough substance to to this role, I think that Rick Mercer would be amazing. Yeah, but like he's a he's a comedian who spent his life following the government. Like, I mean, to make fun of the government, you have to understand the government. Yeah, and that's that's sort of been his role. I mean, it's the same way that I'd I'd say you know someone like a Stephen Colbert or a John Stewart is actually unbelievably well poised for that type of a role. Not that they'd necessarily want it, but just by nature of having to be that in the weeds. On how you know you understand the inner workings of government, you, yeah. you you naturally are poised to to take on something like that. Yeah, let's get to uh, some of the open ended comments here. Um, one viewer said, um, "You know, as things stand, we definitely need a governor general. We can't uh, simply not appoint one and leave everything else as is. But in the longer term, I'd be supportive of exploring some options um, to fully detach from Queen Elizabeth." Um, another listener said, "You know, this was a, a fun exercise." Thank you for the distraction. Um, another says we need to end connections to our colonial past. Another viewer said, I've always taken great pride in two former governors general, Adrian Clarkson and uh, Michelle Jean, Mikhail Jean, uh, both of whom arrived in Canada in the most dire of circumstances. You know, I mean, as refugees, essentially both uh, shining examples of people who could contribute to their new country and have an exceptional appreciation of Canada Another says a nonpartisan committee to vet and select for the position would be better than the prime minister picking somebody. I know that it's been done that way in the past. Pretty interesting stuff here. A lot of people cared about it, though. I was I was curious to see what the response would look like here. And uh, many people uh, taking part in that question, which we really appreciate. A lot of support for Chris Hadfield as well on the chat. So um, 
Yeah. Make sure you get your breakfast this morning, folks, as well. Want to make sure that everybody has sustenance here. Uh, we're all looking out for you and wanting to make sure that everybody has the fuel that you need to make it through your day today. We're having a little bit for people that are streaming us live audio on Mixler that aren't watching this. They're going, why is no idea? This is a great reminder that coming up on March 5th, the team at Friesen Brothers is going to be opening the doors uh, to their 15th Alberta location. Right here in South Edmonton, just off the Anthony Henday. So uh, they've got these amazing, my wife loves it there. They've, they've got like kind of their root cellar area, which is a really neat way to, you know, pick out the, the scallions and the onions and the potatoes you need. They've got their baking section, so you can pick up whatever you need. If you're going to do fabulous baking like raisins or um, uh, flour, uh, sugar, whatever you need for that perfect cinnamon bun. Or, of course, you can just leave the cinnamon buns to them. Friesen Brothers is Alberta grown and Alberta owned. And that store, again, opening its doors on March 5th. Want to remind you today that you can save 70 bucks, $70 off your internet, electricity, or natural gas bill if you go to parkpower.ca and sign up right now. Commercial, residential, doesn't matter. The deal fits for both if you use the promo code 2021-REALTALK. 2021-REALTALK at parkpower.ca. They've been in business proudly for coming up on 10 years in Alberta, and they make a commitment to share 10% of their profits with nonprofits in their own backyard. It's an awesome way to demonstrate they care about community at Park Power. Let's take a look at what's making news today. Well, of course, a lot of talk about vaccines right now. The federal government telling Canadians that they remain in contact all the way up to the Prime Minister's office with drug company executives. They say the target of 6 million doses of those Moderna and Pfizer vaccines by the end of March will be met. Uh, But the opposition parties say that they're not convinced. They're saying Canada's lagging way behind the UK and the US in administering shots. Vaccination centers say they're running out of doses. Federal NDP health critic Don Davies says his party wants government to release the contracts that they signed with vaccine makers, say they want to see more transparency. Meantime, when it comes to vaccines and these new strains that we talked to Dr. Lenora Saxinger about last week, if you missed that, you can find it on our podcast or anywhere. Of course, our YouTube channel is a great place to track down interviews. The AstraZeneca vaccine, it's due to arrive here in Canada soon. Uh, they're saying, listen, it's it's to a certain degree ineffective in preventing moderate illness from this new COVID-19 variant, the one that's been dominant in South Africa. They've detected some cases here in Canada. No, South Africa reacted to this by suspending a planned rollout of AstraZeneca doses. It had planned to begin those vaccinations this week, but scientists are saying that AstraZeneca's vaccine may still be effective in preventing severe illness and death Early trial results, they say, are insufficient. And of course, these are the stories we're following. We'll keep you posted on this. And finally, on the gridiron, a shout out to the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, uh, Tom Brady, seven Super Bowls. Um, Here in Canada, football fans are paying attention to a, a different story. The Edmonton football team has announced its finalists when it comes to the name that the team will carry moving forward. Of course, a name change had been long discussed and the team taking that step in this past year. The finalists here, the finalists, the names, Evergreens, Eagles, 
Elk Hounds, Eclipse, Elk, Evergolds, or Elements. Now, Sam Brooks, the producer of this show, you've told us in past that you consider yourself to be a fan of Edmonton's football team. Huge fan. Huge I, fan. I, I've been going to Commonwealth since I was four years old. Okay. Yeah. So, so the guy has a vested interest here. <laughs> Did any of those seven names jump out at you as one that inspires you? So uh, there's <laughs> selfishly, I, I try to think of a multi-syllable name that you could just slide into the fight song because like that's important to me is it's, you know, we gotta, we gotta make sure that it fits there. Um, Elk hounds came out of nowhere. And I was just like, I kind of like, because I thought elk was just a little too short and choppy, but I also like, I like that it's, it's an, an animal that's like very native to this area of the world and would be a really good one. But uh, so like, oh, but elk hounds is like, you know, I, I don't know very much about elk hounds, but that one intrigues me. Yeah. I'm not sold on any of these. Evergreens, I think just, I don't even know why that's on the list. Yeah. The Edmonton Evergreens. Although and maybe maybe I need to stop thinking about the tree and think more about like mm, you know they, red they, black scenario. they've been yeah they've been the yeah like they've been the green and gold forever so they're evergreen or something like that I, you know you know what yeah. okay my my all time I think favorite sports team name that is quite literally just a color is uh, Laval Rouge or because okay. it's in French it just sounds so, I mean it just means red and gold but it's so beautiful yeah I mean how many how many I mean this from a football league though that had you know, two teams called the Rough Riders when they only had eight teams. So 25% of the league was called the Rough Riders. But how many teams can you have that are named of uh, that are named the colors of their jerseys? Yeah. Yeah, that gets to be. I mean, because the funny thing is, like, we're always going to just sort of refer to them colloquially as the green and gold anyways. Right. So it's, you know, I feel like it's a little on the nose to put the put the colors right there in the name of the, the team. But this yeah. is probably why I'm the, not the one naming the team. Michelle says uh, kind of like Eclipse. Or Evergold. Uh, Yuri says the elk has the most upside for merch and revenue potential. I can see um, Kalen likes Eclipse. Uh, <laughs> Mercedes, the Edmonton Capital X's. Yeah, that's, that's not. <laughs> you got it out of Sam. There you go. Um, Mark says elk is, is the only other name they had, oddly enough, uh, because their name was inappropriate. Um, Blake says Edmonton Empire didn't even make the final list. LOL. I think people were say, were feeling that Edmonton Empire was a little colonial, had a bit of a colonial it's, feel to it. It kind of feels a little bit like we took away one colonial name and we just sort of doubled down on colonialism if we went that way. So yeah, two I think they dodged a bullet on that one. Edmonton Esquires, Edmonton Everything, Edmonton Excellence. Hmm. Alberta Stan says, what about Edmonton Energy? Now, there had been a basketball team called that. Um, I, I, I thought... Sarah, the Edmonton existential crisis. Uh, you know, yeah, the Edmonton egalitarians, says Mike. Um, yeah, you know, I, Albertus, yeah, Edmonton Energy is getting some votes here. I'm a little surprised Edmonton Energy wasn't on the list. It seems to be an obvious one. It's, and it's an obvious shot at Calgary, too. Like, you know so? what I mean? Well, I mean, Calgary likes to, you know, Cal wasn't their their team or city slogan, like feel the energy for a while. And, like, right. Calgary sort of like tries to pride themselves as being like the energy city. And so I feel like, you know, even though even though their team is the Stampeders, um, naming the Edmonton team, the energy would just kind of, you know, it'd be a it'd be a little jab at our at our well, friends good. down south, which good. which is exactly what we need. You right? know, you should you should troll them. You know, Paul thinks the Edmonton Esco, uh, the Edmonton Expos, maybe 
the Edmonton Talistomes. We're getting very regional here in our conversation. Um, Talistome, of course, the big silver balls, the art installation uh, that at least one mayoral candidate, I'm sure, will promise to remove if he wins. Uh, <laughs> Chris says, please, not the energy. Pretty please, Patrick, the Edmonton equalizers. Uh, okay. So everybody's split. There's not there's not one name that jumps out here. What I would say to this list of seven, and I know that it's a tough assignment to rename a sports team because, you know, not everybody's going to be happy and everyone not everyone will be happy until everyone's happy. Right. Until everyone just says, OK, fine, we're moving on. Here we go. Yeah. I think I think Edmonton Elk, the I, I can see. I mean, this actually sounds now that I think about it very dangerous, but I was thinking you know how, like, for example, uh, you know, Saskatchewan fans wear the watermelons on their heads. Oh, yes. I see where this is going. Right. So yeah. an elk rack. Yeah. The, the marketing potential around elk racks is great. But obviously the fans behind you, the people beside you, this could be. A, well, people, what if they were made of foam? You know, you just wear big pe- foam elk racks. Yeah. That'd be fine. Or, or do you limit people? You, you, you know, do you do officially sanctioned? Like, I don't think they do in Saskatchewan officially sanctioned watermelon helmets. <laughs> I think everyone brings their you own. Have to, you have to buy your watermelons from this band. Yeah, right. Because so, the official riders watermelons. Yeah. So people are going to want to bring in their own elk racks. And um, <laughs> I'm getting all kinds of crazy ideas. I don't know if this is going to work or not, but we'll see. So they say that's the list of seven. All right. Let's get to some serious business. Now, you heard us checking in with communities across the province of Alberta a while ago as uh, the province was getting set to make changes changes that it had said it was going to make to 911 dispatch across Alberta and mayors were speaking out on this show fire chiefs were speaking out on this show and sort of warning us they were warning the provincial government and they were warning us of what might happen well the changes have been made and the voices are growing even stronger so for the next 20 minutes or so we're going to check in with people who are being affected by this. We're going to get firsthand reports on what the early transition has looked like with regards to emergency service delivery. And we're going to get a sense of what these community impactors want you to do when it comes to having a voice and catching the attention of your elected officials. It's a pleasure to welcome back to the program His Worship, uh, Don Scott, the mayor of Fort McMurray Wood Buffalo, and along with him, Captain Julie Stewart, who for more than a decade has served with the ANZAC Volunteer Fire Department. Uh, Julie, Don, welcome to the show, and thanks for being here this morning. Good morning. Thanks, Ryan. Uh, Mayor, why thanks don't for we, having us back on. Yeah, you bet. Happy to have you here. Uh, last time, uh, and Julie, we're going to talk to you in a second to get a sense of what this means in the fire halls, what this means with regards to emergency response. Uh, Mayor, you were here, I guess, less than a month ago saying this is worthy of sounding the alarm. Um, I don't want to be too dramatic here, but have your worst fears manifested themselves? Where are we at now that the changes have been made? Yeah, it's actually far worse than we anticipated because what we've been doing since the transition, the transition happened on the 19th. Just to remind your listeners, the uh, what happened is there is a shift in the way EMS calls are dispatched. So instead of local people doing it in my region and in other parts of Alberta, they've all been transitioned to certain call centers throughout Alberta. And what we said is my region's as big as Nova Scotia. That's going to cause a lot of problems. Four previous governments refused to make that transition, and I was part of one of them, so I was there firsthand to see it. And what's happened is the transition has nevertheless been implemented by the UCP, and all the things that we predicted would happen are exactly occurring. You know, it's a, it's a, what I've been calling is a giant calamity. It's probably worse than a calamity. Uh, we've been watching the calls 
we've been shadowing them. And we've had to intervene into about 20%. And uh, the situation that Julie was involved in is emblematic of everything that we predicted would happen and what I foresee happening as we go forward. Captain Stewart, what's he talking about? Uh, so as he mentioned, uh, AHS took over uh, centralized dispatching on January 19th. Um, the day after uh, the takeover occurred, uh, we had an incident in our, in our small community uh, where a tree had rolled on an elderly man uh, who was a pillar of our community. Um, another resident was with him uh, to which he contacted a member of the local fire department asking him if we were en route to help uh, this man who was in his backyard uh, in the elements of minus 27 uh, with the tree that I just rolled and uh, he had sustained injuries to his lower leg. Uh, we had not been dispatched to go. So we self-dispatched ourselves, knowing that this man needed our help. Um, and we, we made ourselves uh, available, went, uh, provided patient care, uh, prevent prevention for hyperthermia, uh, stabilized his leg. Um, we waited for the ambulance. Um, we then ended up having to send two members out in the community to find the, the ambulance itself as they were not given the proper coordinates of where the injury occurred. Uh, and then our members had to guide the ambulance to the 76-year-old man that was laying in his backyard uh, with a double uh, fracture to his lower leg. So had somebody not followed up, had you not self-dispatched, who knows how long this guy would have been laying there? Who knows what the consequences would have been? Uh, I would imagine that a spokesperson uh, might say, yes, uh, you know, early uh, issues, uh, crossed wires won't happen again. Have you seen other examples here? Was this a one-off right. or is this indicative of a bigger problem? Right. So certainly we were all kind of a little, you know, okay, here we go. Uh, we're no longer uh, under our local dispatching. Uh, so it was, you know, the day after. So we thought likely hiccups, maybe a few clunks along the way. Uh, but sadly, it wasn't uh, just that one call. We had uh, another very serious incident occur on January 29th where a youth in our community uh, was involved in a snowmobile accident. And he was uh, left outside um, in the cold for over an hour uh, before an ambulance uh, came out from Fort McMurray. To add to that, uh, the ambulance came out cold, uh, which in, in our terms would mean no lights or sirens. Um, so they obviously did not know the, how to prioritize this call and the severity of the injuries that the individual had sustained. Uh, and once that ambulance made patient care contact, obviously wondering where their local fire department was uh, in the community of Anzac, you know, 50 kilometers away from Fort McMurray, they had to dispatch another ambulance from Fort McMurray, ALS, Advanced Life Support, to provide patient care. Uh, so the delay uh, was astronomical, and um, he was airlifted to Edmonton. You know, it is it's close to home for, for me. He is the family friend. Um, and so it's just very sad. I just don't want to see this happen to anybody else in my community. I don't want this to happen to anybody else within the region of Fort McMurray. So, Mayor, you've you've uh, sent another open letter to the province. It's it's co-signed with the, the mayors that you were here on the show with previously. Mayor Nenshi down in Calgary, Mayor Spearman, who we're going to talk to in a minute out of Lethbridge and Mayor Veer out of Red Deer. Do you think that anecdotal evidence like fire captains telling us about is is enough to catch the attention of the province? Do you get a sense that you have a, a captive or open-minded audience with the government? Where is this at right now? 
Surprisingly, we have not been met with an open mind at all. They are very closed-minded, very determined to impose this, no matter the human cost, because we have been talking about this for six months. We've been predicting this. Uh, right after the transition, they said the transition is very smooth. Everything went great with no incidents. And these events that we're describing, and these are not the only ones, uh, just to be clear, we've had to intervene in about 20% of the calls. There's lots of other examples, but these are two that are, uh, that are pretty dramatic. Uh, the government has refused to make any changes. The gov government is, in fact, going the opposite direction, saying how great it is. And what they've been doing instead is saying that the people who are talking about these problems are lying. Uh, that's effectively the letter that, and the comments that we've been receiving from the government. So it's, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's very disappointing. It's a very disappointing path for this government to take. And I think the residents of this region have a lot to be upset about. Yeah, it's I'm going to say just editorial, it takes guts to pick a fight with teachers, doctors, nurses, paramedics and firefighters all at the same time, uh, most especially during a pandemic. Uh, Captain, you're you, you've given us a sense of of, you know, the, the geographical implications. Uh, you know, you, if, if you have to call for another ambulance, for example, out of Wood Buffalo to get to Anzac, I don't care how fast you're going. 50 kilometers is still 50 kilometers. Is, is this. You know, we can talk about the issue in the city of Lethbridge or in the city of Fort McMurray, in the city of Calgary. But for these rural communities like Anzac, is is this even more of an issue uh, for your neighbors? A hundred percent. You know, I, I have to go to the local grocery store and the gas station uh, in addition to our fire chief and uh, deputy and, and other Anzac members um, that have been on the fire department for years and People have got questions. People don't understand what's going on. So it's, it's we don't move, we don't get hurt, but people still have to go on. They have to go to town. They have to get essential um, supplies. They were still navigating through this global pandemic. And um, here we are now unsure that if, if our kids are out, uh, you know, using the recreational tools that we have and, and we choose to, to live rural, uh, whether they're going to have medical um, support coming their way. So what, not even just that. It's just it's somebody with a predetermined medical condition, somebody who has a stroke or a heart attack. We, they they never conducted any type of community engagement or risk assessment with us to even understand the layout uh, from Fort McMurray to Anzac, Fort McMurray to Jeanvier, Fort McMurray to Fort Mackay. Like we are super rural communities to, um, you know, th these ambulances coming to our to our aid with the wrong information. To give us a sense of how dispatch worked before, Julie, were there were the were these operators uh, people that lived in these communities? I mean, these people like you just yeah. described these secondary highways. Were they traveling these secondary highways on their way to work at the dispatch center? Is that how local these professionals were in past? Yeah, exactly. So um, our our local dispatching, they knew the like, the geographic layout uh, of our of our region. So they knew uh, when they're sending an ambulance, they're not asking questions of like, what intersection are we meeting you at? We don't have intersections. We don't have traffic lights. We are we are super rural com community. Um, so they understand when when they're sending out an ambulance, they're sending a mile marker. Um, they know that information, and these centralized dispatched employees don't have that. So, Mayor, what do you want Albertans to do right now? Contact your MLAs. Uh, we have we have been making that effort, Mayor Nenshi, Mayor Spearman, Mayor Beer, and I. Uh, contact your MLAs. Let them know that this is unacceptable, and you, every Albertan should be demanding top health care. 
uh, especially during a pandemic, as you said. And this is one of those times when every Albertan should be extremely upset with what's happening. Uh, we predicted this. It's exactly occurring, as we described. 90% of the time, uh, our ambulances were being dispatched faster than AHS before uh, the transition. And we told them that. We showed them the information. They are not being transparent with Albertans. They're not being accountable to Albertans. And they're certainly not being accountable to the people of my region. And uh, the people of my region should be rising up and being extremely upset. We're going to be having a council meeting on Tuesday. This is going to be front and center in that meeting. And uh, we'll be taking action as a council. But I believe that every resident of this region needs to rise up and complain to their local MLAs and to the UCP government, to the Minister of Health, and to the, the Premier. The Minister of Health is, has been, uh, he's had his head straight in the sand this whole time as we've been going forward. And the Premier hasn't answered the letters that we've sent to him asking for this to be stopped. And that really is, is the answer to this. This should be stopped based on what we've observed to date and what we predicted would happen. Captain Stewart, before I thank you for your time, let you get back to your duties at the fire hall. Is there anything you wanted to add to what Mayor Scott had to say there? No, I would just be, um, it'd be nice to hear from them. Yeah. There have been uh, statements made that are inaccurate. Um, um, you know, so it's just be accountable and, and follow the values that you post on your website. Uh, so compassion and respect. Um, so these are things that they're not following. Um, and, and it would be nice to hear from them. You know, we've sent a, a letter like myself um, on behalf of my department and as a community uh, member, not heard anything back. Um, so still, you know, keep our voices loud. And, and like Don, uh, Scott just mentioned, like, make sure that you, you keep reaching out and, um, writing those letters and, and keeping our voices nice and loud so they can hear us. Uh, this is not okay. And we can't keep going this way. Um, I don't want to be in a position where I have to uh, report to a fatality and uh, or hear of a fatality that we weren't even able there uh, to support our community. Well, that's gonna, that's going to be the thing. I mean, not to not to state the obvious, but uh, we know that first responders it's a, it's not a job; it's a calling. And I, I just I can imagine how somebody would feel, uh, you know, that shows up six or seven minutes late to a call and and they've just lost the patient sixty seconds ago as civilians are doing CPR. I mean, I could just. I can just picture it. It's, it. It gets me thinking about a completely different story. Edmonton building an LRT in between, you know, that runs across the entrance to the emergency room at the Royal Alexander Hospital. You just sit there and there's been ambulances waiting while the trend. Anyway, don't get me started. Time is of the essence. Ten seconds or one minute matters. We know that. Uh, Captain Julie Stewart with Anzac's Fire Department. Thank you for your service. Thanks for making time for us today. Uh, and Mayor Don Scott out of the uh, RM of Wood Buffalo, Fort McMurray Wood Buffalo. Thank you for that to you both. Thanks, um, Ryan. Yeah, you bet. We're going to head down to Lethbridge uh, in just a second. Don't let, don't ever. You know, sometimes when you're in the in the middle of of chaos and and things sort of start to lose their maybe not their meaning, but they lose their significance a little bit. May it never lose its significance that the mayor of a city is saying publicly that the health minister has his head in the sand and has the whole time. Let it never become normal that the Alberta government is fighting with almost everybody across industries, across communities, across the rural urban divide, across budget line items, education, health, industry, refusing with the common thread we're hearing on this show 
And in any interview that you watch or listen to, you will hear people saying they are not taking our advice. They are not consulting. They are not answering us back. They are not listening. Let that never become normal. The team at Local Waste has been in business. Speaking of communities, it's what they're all about. For more than 25 years, they've been fighting for your business. They love to talk trash. They want to take your call. Whether you're a small business or a big operator, hotels, grocery stores, shopping malls, they want to come up with a solution that allows you to increase the level of service that you receive and decrease the bills that you're paying. It's what they're all about, going up against the big faceless garbage guys. And they want to talk trash with you today. You can give them a call, Chris or Lauren, at 780-242-9746 or check them out online at localwaste.ca. Also, a shout out to the team at Westworld Computers today. You may be looking to upgrade your Apple Watch, your iPhone, your, your tablet. Maybe you want to pick up a new iPad or a MacBook Pro, but it's not in the budget to go brand new. Well, they've got their refurbished, and of course, they, they, they tack a little extra warranty onto that. The previously owned products that they're proud to make available to Westworld customers. They've been building these customer relationships as a family-owned business for more than 40 years. So if you're looking to upgrade on a limited budget, they can work with you. Go see Daryl and his team at Westworld Computers. Now, I promise, Real Talkers, I'm going to get to some of your comments on this, but we're operating with limited time here, and we appreciate the availability of our next guests. So let's head down to Lethbridge, Alberta. That's where we find Mayor Chris Spearman and Fire Chief Mark Rathwell. Gentlemen, welcome back to the show. It feels like it's been a while since we last spoke, considering everything that's developed. Uh, Mayor Spearman, I'm sure that you heard what Mayor Scott had to say there. Do you share his sense of urgency? Are, are Are you stopping yourself or maybe not even stopping yourself from saying, we told you so? Well, we never like to say we told you so. Uh, I'd like to commend my fire chief for being a professional and uh, trying to work with the folks at Alberta Health Services. Uh, we have not been treated with respect. There has been no accountability. Uh, there's been no, no meaningful effort on behalf of the leadership. Um, I'm talking here about the chief paramedic, uh, chief, uh, paramedic uh, Sandbeck, and Dr. Bernie Yu from Alberta Health Services, right up to the minister. Uh, they really have indicated no willingness to work with us on these issues. So uh, we've identified a whole series of things, and uh, I'm going to say it because I'm the politician. And, uh, you know, our chief has to work with Alberta Health Services. He's trying to resolve these things. But since the implementation of centralized dispatch, we've seen increased respond times, uh, wrong addresses, Sometimes similar addresses in the city are confused or they're in the wrong geographic quadrant. Uh, ALS support to engines uh, sometimes are not even being uh, dispatched or not being dispatched efficiency, efficiently. So, uh, you know, uh, we're, we're seeing a lot of risky situations, uh, lower levels of service, and uh, we believe that lives are in jeopardy. So, um, I think uh, Chief Paramedic Sandbeck, when we complained and when we uh, had our joint message uh, a couple of weeks ago, uh, his response was, these mayors are lying. Uh, we know this isn't true. Th- this is our system. And I beg to differ. He says that he's got the access, uh, he's got access to data from the system. Well, Albertans pay for that system. It's not his system. That system is there to safeguard all Albertans. When we report deficiencies with the current levels of service, 
we should get a response. Our chief is being very polite and very diplomatic. Uh, we're not getting a response. When we identify issues, there is no response. So I am agreeing with Mayor Scott, there's no accountability. With something as important as, uh, as ambulance response, shouldn't there be measures of effectiveness? Shouldn't the public know when the system fails and what the efforts are, what's being put in place to fix that? Because right now, none of that exists. Chief Rathwell, there's uh, there's been some time that's passed now, I, I suppose, for you to get a sense of, of what the new reality looks like. I, I can already imagine that spokespersons would 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 uh, that would advocate for or explain or justify the change would say, hey, listen, there have been some bumps in the road. There have been some hiccups. Uh, what have those looked like from your end? What have they looked like for the for the firefighters down in Lethbridge? So so we actually look at this uh, several different ways. Yes, there's been problems and issues, and those issues translate to risk. And risk in my community is is a tough thing to swallow when, when we're actually taking a step backwards, it feels like, in, in the service delivery model that we've been providing to our community and to the citizens around us. So um, it, it, we have seen lots of uh, wrong addresses. Yes, we've seen lots of delayed responses. We've seen uh, our integrated model not used in the most efficient way it can be. And, and when I say that, it's our medical first response group. And, and I can echo this for all the communities uh, that, that have this. That is the band-aid holding uh, a lot of folks together. So when the ambulances are busy and unavailable or delayed because they're coming from 20 minutes plus away, it's that medical first responder, no matter what community we're in, that that's responding uh, that knows their job and can go out and help stabilize those situations. And when you're not using that uh, efficiently or effectively, uh, that's a delay, that's a risk, uh, that's a concern uh, for myself, for my community. And certainly you've, you've heard it uh, echoed from all the mayors as well. Mayor Spearman, has there have there been are there other implications here with with regards to not just response times or not just service to to civilians? Uh, you know, confusion around calls, wrong directions, unfamiliarity with territory. Is there a, is there a revenue implication here for these cities, including Lethbridge, when when you lose the ability to contract out these services? Have have these Alberta cities lost revenue? Uh, we haven't lost revenue. In fact, we were prepared to pay for the service to maintain the uh, the higher level of service, but uh, our offers fell on deaf ears. So uh, we believe there'll be added costs in the future as uh, we'll be forced to separate our the ambulance service and the fire service going forward because uh, we haven't been receiving additional ambulance uh, services as our city has grown. So we're building a new fire hall in West Lethbridge and uh, there's been no commitment to provide an ambulance there. So we'll have to move an existing ambulance uh, to that fire hall uh, in an effort uh, to serve ha almost half the population of the city of Lethbridge. So where does this go from here? Like if, 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 if you're sounding the alarm, so to speak, and not getting any response and you feel like nobody's listening. I mean, Chief, let me ask you this first. Like, how do you, I mean, here you are doing interviews, but, but how do you ramp this up? And, and ultimately, how do you get the change made that you know could be a matter of life and death, the change that needs to be made. So, so I guess uh, what's been great is both our, our mayor has done a great job leading us through this. He's going to take that political route and, and manage that part of it. 
I'm going to take the operations side of the business and that's the part I'm going to dig into. And I have been digging into my whole staff has been digging into We're we're watching the, the patterns that are emerging, which we knew were going to happen. And we're seeing some that surprisingly uh, caught us off guard a little bit. Uh, and we're monitoring all those. We're reporting those through uh, the, the correct procedures that we're supposed to use. And we're trying to come up with some solutions out of the box to try to help make the, again, this sort of new norm. I hate using that term, by the way. <laughs> it seems to be a 2020 catchphrase, but uh, we want to take those learnings and some of these out-of-box ideas and and share them with our counterparts to see if, if this is a solution that we could maybe make this better uh, overall. Because I, I believe we have to work together. We don't have a choice. Um, but I do believe that there's opportunity in here where we can try to influence and hopefully share our efficiencies and some of our ideas to try to make the system overall better. And Mayor, you've you, you've announced already that, that you're not going to be seeking re-election. I don't know if that impacts uh, how you treat this or not. Some might say you can you can leave it all out there on the field. Although I might suggest that if you were seeking re-election, you'd probably treat it the exact same way, considering uh, the implications here for the people of your community. So, so how are you? Where? What direction are you going to take this in? Well, I'm the mayor until uh, the third week in October. And I'm going to continue serving as the mayor, and I'm going to be advocating for my community. Uh, our chief is being a professional. He's trying to work through the existing processes. All the information that's being communicated is being communicated in one direction. That's from the city to Alberta Health Services. And we're just not getting the, uh, the response back. There's no indication that they're prepared to improve the system. They're just prepared to impose it. And I find that disappointing, and I think that's a really poor attitude. I think there needs to be a commitment from the Alberta government that they're going to provide the highest level of service. And to this point, there's been no assurance, no credible assurance that they're willing to do that. Mayor, uh, Crazy James on our text line is wondering if the AUMA uh, would, would, would have any role to play here. Is, is this on Mayor Morishita's radar? Is the AUMA talking about this? Can, can you help us uh, non-politicos yeah. understand how that would work? Well, yes, we've uh, communicated both with the AUMA and the RMA, which is the Rural Municipalities of Alberta, and both are supporting us. Uh, they are both saying uh, that, that we have a valid case, we provide the highest level of service, and the government should be listening to us. But uh, the AUMA and the RMA have similar issues uh, in different areas where the government is not prepared to listen to us. And... Uh, as I said the last time, here we have a government made up primarily of people who were not in government prior to uh, two years ago. So I think uh, Rick McIver and a few others are the few experienced MLAs for a bunch of rookies. And they're just uh, telling people they're going to do it their way. And uh, I think it's in from one issue to another, it's been a total disaster. That's Mayor Chris Spearman out of the city of Lethbridge. Uh, that's also where Fire Chief Mark Rathwell is joining us from. Uh, gentlemen, don't envy the position you're in. Obviously, this is something that impacts all Albertans, but we appreciate your your candor and your continued service to your communities. Thanks for talking to us today. Thank you. Have a great Thank day. you. Yeah, you as well. The real talkers on our live chat right now. Uh, you know, I mean, Sandra says 
uh, well, she's wondering about uh, the community of Fort McMurray, wondering why they voted UCP says wasn't Brian Jean their representative in past. Yeah, I mean, did you read that? Did it, we didn't really talk about it much. We I should say Brian Jean had an editorial uh, published late last week, kind of an open letter to Jason Kenny on leadership. And um, it took it, it took a few swerves. It took a couple of interesting uh directional changes let's say we can get into that today I'll, I'll let you know that we did request an interview uh with mr gene who who simply said to us i think i'm gonna he said thank you for the opportunity he said congratulations on the show he said i think i'm just gonna let my editorial speak for itself and it did um we'll get into that maybe a little bit later on in this show or at least sometime this week but uh yeah i mean obviously there's been strong support for conservative governance in past in those communities not to say always um, wig with says I, I, it feels like the premier is attacking everybody all at once so it's hard to keep up with all the things he's doing it makes it hard for average people to really know what's happening um and you're right wig with we'll get the odd letter from somebody we, we received a few just last week to talk at ryanjesperson.com that's how you can send us an email people are writing they're, they're kind of channeling channeling their uh, if you're a hockey fan you know elliot friedman and his 31 thoughts um, someone wrote in uh, 30 reasons why they're upset with the provincial government. And I was just I was reading through the list going, yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you kind of forget, right? You, if, if it's one thing that plagues a government or one or two things, uh, that's you know, that's one scenario. If, if, if it's if it's if it's, you know, controversy after controversy, scandal after scandal, fight after fight, um, it's a bit of a different game, isn't it? Ken says rural support dropping. Uh, Q Premier making up a rural urban divide on the coal mine issue, um, which he did last week. You probably saw it. I don't have the, the quote in front of me. Uh, Premier Jason Kenney said something along the lines of, you know, people in the big cities need to remember that everybody needs jobs or something like that. Sort of tried to turn it into an urban rural kind of a thing. Uh, Mark says, you know, there are too many things to contact your MLA about. Uh, it's the Trump approach. Overwhelm people. So they can't just focus on one thing. Um, we're going to prove that to you in the 10 o'clock hour. We have another interview coming up, the, an, another GoFundMe, another petition, another fight, uh, this one on harm reduction. And uh, lawyer Avnish Nanda and uh, Dr. Jennifer Jackson, uh, a Ph.D. and a registered nurse out of the University of Calgary, will join us. That's coming up just after 10 o'clock to tell us what they're so upset about. Lynn says the government simply doesn't engage in consultation with its voters uh, Lynn says, sadly, I suspect the rural populations will continue to support them. Good luck. I don't believe they'll listen. I don't know about that, Lynn. I'll, I'll be curious to see. Now, now people will say, and this is not, we, we have another guest set to go here, so I'm not going to wax too long here, but people will say, you know, I'm upset with this government, but I don't see uh, an option that compels me. And, and this is kind of classic, especially in a two-party system. I hear it from people all the time. We get letters to the show that say, you know, I, I'm, I'm furious with the UCP. I'm not happy with them, but, but I don't know about the NDP. I'm just not sure. And then, and then you've got these other parties going, well, well what about us? Like, like I saw, I don't have it in front of me, but I saw somebody wrote in a note to say, hey, the Alberta party has been talking about this for a long time. And the Alberta party announcing, by the way, a few days ago, what its leadership race is going to look like, the timelines for it. Kind of weird timelines, by the way. They're they're kind of running head to head with election cycles. And it just anyway, I'm not going to get into that now, but they will argue and they will bang their drum saying to you, there are more than two options. I just hope that when people consider, you know, political engagement or political support, volunteering donations, wherever, that they're actually able to to evaluate the performance of elected officials and they're able to evaluate policies and what would be best for their communities. And sometimes you, you have to look outside the, the party banner or you have to look outside, you know, the past 
connotations of certain parties. You know, my grandpa or my grandma always voted this way. I've always voted this way. Sometimes you got to be able to say present day or even looking ahead, right? What's going to be best for our community? What, what party has the best platform or what leader demonstrates and exemplifies the qualities that I seek in a party leader or in a political leader? Who inspires me? Who do I trust? Who do I believe? These are all questions we want to make sure that we're asking. Uh, before we move on to our next guest, I wanted to remind you that th- this is the type of year where people are looking around and, and realizing the value of a reliable vehicle. If you kind of hold your breath or if, if, if your heart's in your throat every time you try to start your car, your SUV, your truck this time of year, maybe it's time for an upgrade. And if that's the case, I want to encourage you to go see the teams at St. Albert and Sherwood Dodge. Of course, we've been telling you they are the destination in Alberta for the Jeep brand. But of course, they've also got one of the largest inventories of Ram trucks in the province. And right now they're offering 0% financing up to 96 months or discounts up to 17.5. That's right, almost 18 grand. You can check out their websites for all the details and they're easy to find. You just go check out the sponsors tab at ryanjesperson.com and that'll lead you to the links for Sherwood and St. Albert Dodge. Well, this next conversation, I mean, these are these are the types of conversations that we tell you that we're open to all the time. And the show, when we say something, we mean it. And so that's why I'm excited to welcome our next guest. She was uh, tweeting over the weekend. I listened to the roundtable uh, for Friday's Real Talk. And I want to say something about having a panel that talks about Aaron O'Toole as a possible prime minister in 2021. That was Harmon Candola that made that pick. Uh and then celebrates listing the Proud Boys as a terrorist group. Well, of course, the tweet caught my attention. And so it's a real pleasure to get into it, to welcome to the program an assistant professor out of the Department of Humanities at York University. Uh, she's the editor of the culture and politics website, Peary Science, uh, Dr. Uh, Shama Rangwala. Thank you so much for being with us today and welcome to Real Talk. Hi, Ryan. It's great to talk to you. It's great to see see you virtually yeah i it looks like we might have you frozen uh, sam's gonna work on it i want to oh. oh there we go you're right back did i oh, okay. uh, doc, doctor did i pronounce your name correctly in the introduction i just want to make sure yeah it's shama rangwala okay That's, perfect yeah. <laughs> perfect well welcome to real talk um you know we, we we say like when it comes to what's real talk all about we want to have meaningful conversations and oftentimes those conversations become most meaningful when people have have time to take them in and think about them and then offer commentary in other words we sometimes have to have conversations over series of days and so i'd rather have you do this in your own words than me continue to read your twitter thread what was it that that prompted you to reach out and comment about what you heard on our roundtable on friday well first of all it's not worth you know commenting on every kind of media thing so i knew that you would be receptive to it and i'm just always asking people to think historically and systemically so when we have something like the terrorism designation if we just think about it as you know these are white supremacists we need to expel them from our body politic or from you know the public sphere we're not actually thinking about what that term terrorism means, what, how it's been used historically. So I'm old enough to remember the expansion of the surveillance state after 9-11. Um, and the person I really want to direct uh, real talk 
uh, listeners and viewers to is Harsha Walia because she has been tweeting about this. She has been speaking out publicly about this uh, terrorism designation and just came out with a book called Border and Rule. I'm in the middle of reading it. It's really brilliant. Not everyone has time to read books, but yeah, follow her on Twitter, Harsha Walia. But okay, what is terrorism? Terrorism is not just our people being scared, right? It's not that emotion of terror. It's a very ideological political concept. And it has been used to expand militarism abroad. So, you know, U.S. interventions in Afghanistan, Canada was there as well, um, and to expand police surveillance domestically. And so this is not good for the kinds of people who, you know, you might think are being protected by designating the Proud Boys as terrorists. It's actually kind of the opposite of what Black, Indigenous and people of color have been calling for, which is the defunding, dismantling abolition of police and that um in a surveillance state. So you, when you talk about, uh, you talk about the Aaron O'Toole conversation that we had on Friday and what it might look like for Canada's official opposition to attempt to glean the support that it would need to, to challenge, to take back Canada. That's been the marketing or, or you know, take back the government uh, next federal election. What is it? I don't want to assume anything, and I don't want to assume that that something is understood by myself or our audience. Uh, so I guess I'm asking you to spell out what you believe to be yeah. most problematic about that type of political messaging. Yeah, take back Canada is part of these revanchist movements all across the world. So what do I mean by revanchist? So revanchism. Um, really typically is about regaining some kind of thing that has been lost. So it can be lost territory or it can be a lost feeling of, you know, what the nation is. And so saying take back Canada, who are they taking it back from? Are they taking it back from, uh, you know, women, people of color, other kinds of people who were historically excluded from, you know, the political public sphere. Uh, this is a global phenomenon. And so, you know, it's manifesting in Canada in its particular flavor. Um, but Take Back Canada is not different in terms of quality um, as like make America great again, because they're all about, let's go back to some other time. We know that the UCP is doing this as well. They're, they want to go back to some previous time when there was an oil boom. I mean, we're definitely not going there anymore. So I just want people to think about the right-wing ecosystem. Because if we're looking at politics as a horse race where like, oh, are they jockeying for position or what do the polls look like or can they, criticize the other party enough so you know they can gain some ground um that actually misses the whole kind of ecosystem they're a part of and when i say that you know the proud boys are in a continuum with like rebel media and post-millennial ontario proud canada proud and the cpc that's because they had you know hamish marshall and jeff ballingall as their you know working on their campaigns. And so this is not a kind of abstract connection. Um, we know that those forms of media have been apologists for the Proud Boys. I know that Real Talk uh, listeners and viewers are very good at finding receipts and investigating. Um, it's part of my Twitter thread as well. I retweeted someone who, who did kind of dig in there. And so when you have, you know, Andrew Shear going to Faith Goldie's show, Carrie Dion, you know, Edmonton um, politician, 
picture with with Faith Goldie. I mean, she is an actual white supremacist. So these are not kind of abstract connections, but we need to think about how they work in tandem. There are things that politicians can't say. And so when you designate the Proud Boys as a terrorist group, it allows them, it's like a gift for them because they can say, oh, I can denounce that. And so you know that that's not part of us. But I have this, uh, you know, I'm a kind of nerd, like I, I teach film and stuff. So I'm gonna use a Godfather example. So in Godfather part one, there is this famous scene where um, the baptism happens and, you know, Michael Corleone is out there, you know, he's in the church. He's like saying, I denounce like Satan, I denounce all this stuff. And of course it's, it's intercut with uh, scenes of all of the murders that he, uh, that, you know, he has ordered. So um, there's always a kind of sanitized image on the one hand um, and then they're, part of this whole ecosystem. This is very, this is very old, you know, in, in India, there's the RSS and the BJP, you know, there are all kinds of ways that um, organizations work together. But this is not to say that the CPC is, you know, saying the same things. But when we only focus on the spectacular and very explicit forms of white supremacy, we're not putting them in connection with the ways that they're sanitized and then repackaged for the public. But Dr. Rangwala, you you know how this is going to go, right? You know what if, if we had Aaron O'Toole on the show today, and and by the way, we have been talking to his team, and we've been mm-hmm. trying to book an appearance for Mr. O'Toole to to join us here on Real Talk, or, or if you were talking to Andrew Shear's team uh, prior to that, or if you were talking to Premier Ken team right now or premier Moe's team or or any of the you know premier ford's team all of the prominent conservative politicians in canada right now let alone the mps and mlas and everybody else um, they would say listen we're a big tent party they would say obviously we don't condone racist or offensive views obviously that has no place in this party you know they'd come up with some sort of excuse like politicians do across party lines mm-hmm. saying i you know I, I don't speak on behalf or you know i don't even know who these people are you know mm-hmm. jason kenny you know pretended like he was surprised that 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 uh you know certain people had memberships to the united conservative party i don't even know who these people are we're a big tent what would you say to them what would leadership look like what would your response be to a hypothetical statement like the one i just put out there Well, I think that it's very convenient to denounce racism. I think it's very convenient to say that these are not people who are part of the party when they have built a they've built a tent where people who, you know, believe in, say, white genocide conspiracy theories uh, feel welcome in, in that party. Right. And so, you know, I think that this is a strategy, though. This is the way that. Canadian kind of multiculturalism works. Of course, there are people of color in the Conservative Party. There are people of color in the Proud Boys as well. There are all kinds of ways that these organizations legitimize themselves. But why are white supremacists attracted to conservative parties? Why do does white supremacist media like the Rebel uh, support conservative parties? When why do you think? I mean, I think that this is, you know, they're the dog whistles who want to, you know, I actually have a longer answer to this because I have given. Well, we have time. Uh, we have time because I oh, want to get okay. no Shama. Like, I'm, I'm thrilled that you're here. and We've got lots <laughs> of time. We got lots of time. So because here's my thing, like I'm going to generalize. But what I would say to you, if you're out for a coffee together here, here's the deal. Like conservative parties know that they need to grow. They know that they need to. They did all right in vote count. 
in October of 2019, but they lost the election. It's it's because they dominate the prairies. They do, they they run up the score in Alberta and Saskatchewan and parts of Manitoba and, and eastern British Columbia. But they but they they take losses uh, in the GTA and in Greater Vancouver and in Montreal. And that's where you need to win or generally you need to win in Quebec. And so these parties know, you know, here here is the the great debate that they have, I think, which is do you try to go a little bit more mainstream? I mean, it was fascinating to watch Aaron O'Toole even campaign for the leadership of the party because he kind of had to pander to the the membership base to win the leadership. Right. So talking about things like firearm rights and hard on the carbon tax and these types of things. But then you kind of have to back off and appear to be a little bit more moderate because then you have to win not just with party members, but with Canadians. Right. So you look at what a party would have to do, a conservative party or any party to win in the urban centers. You've got to be more moderate. You've got to be more progressive. You've got to be more present day if i can say and that's where they believe that 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 they're going to lose their base so there's pandering mm-hmm. it's like you know you're standing on these two icebergs that are separating and and you're yeah. kind of slowly going into the splits and you've got to make a decision are we going to double down and here's what i don't understand quite frankly with some conservative politicians and we could do a whole other talk on on liberal or ndp politicians or green politicians but we're talking conservatives right now what i don't understand is they seem to work so hard to fight for the support mm-hmm. they already have. And they don't seem to understand how to glean the support of voters that they don't currently have and or or understand in meaningful fashion why they don't have the support of those voters. Yeah, so um, let's talk about, I, I like this iceberg uh, because we talk a lot about polarization. Um, we are living in a time of crisis, of multiple crises. And so we have a crisis of neoliberalism and austerity, which is, you know, I'm always yelling from the rooftops, we live in a society. This crisis of neoliberalism and austerity is turning us, this is a long, long process, decades and decades long process of turning us into atomized individuals where we don't care about other people. Um, we care about our tax breaks. We care about having, you know, detached homes with lawns and, you know, cars instead of public transit. And so what we're missing in this crisis of neoliberalism is a sense of belonging. What parties are offering uh, right-wing populist parties, that, that populism is about creating a sense of belonging. And it doesn't have to be grounded in anything that actually helps the people who feel that way. Um, so that's one, one answer to it. Another answer to it, you know, is to have mutual aid, to take of each other to you know uh, come together to be in solidarity with vulnerable people uh, but with this right-wing populism you know even something like a wexit it doesn't matter if that will help or hinder you know the people who support it it matters that it gives them a sense of belonging and i see this with the anti-masking stuff too that they feel like they are part of a, a social movement which they are but is that social movement going to help them? I mean, no, because people are getting COVID and the more that it spreads, the more variants. You've had lots of people on the show to talk about that. So when you say like they are they are working really hard to consolidate their base, it's because that's 
all that it is. It's not about actually giving policies that are going to help save rural Albertans. And so that's why, you know, it's been really great that you're having all of these people from outside of the urban centers on your show who perhaps have historically been part of conservative bases who are saying, hey, actually, this isn't helping us. Like, why should we feel this, this historical sense of belonging that our communities have had with conservative parties if these policies aren't actually helping us? So we need to really see that this is about um, you know, the word is demos, like creating a sense of like we are a collective of people with political power. But um, yeah, anti-maskers, you know, they I, I don't think they really care necessarily about the masking. They care about being part of something that is against what they consider big government. Um, so, yeah, this is this has been decades and decades, you know, in the making. But we're really seeing the crisis come to a head with COVID because you cannot be an individual in COVID. There's no like this, even this concept of freedom, individual freedom is meaningless. There's no like radical individual freedom. We stop at red lights, right? Like this is just, they're like very basic things that we uh, do in order to take care of each other and like navigate spaces on roads. So um, yeah, COVID is kind of laying that bare, but I think that hopefully goes some ways to explaining why I think that uh, the actual policies don't matter. And that's why something like Ontario Proud, you know, that is connected to uh, the CPC through Jeff Ballingall. All of these beautiful pictures of, you know, vistas and the natural beauty of Canada interspersed with like very violent things against like Trudeau, Notley, you know, whatever they perceive as their enemies. And right now it's all kind of anti-mask, anti-lockdown stuff. Um, we're talking to Dr. Shama Rangwala, uh, our guest here on Real Talk and follow up to the Real Talk roundtable on Friday. Um, I really appreciate you, by the way, first of all, listening to the roundtable, second of all, responding to it. I wish you would have been there with Harmon in real time. Uh, to challenge him because I know that he'd be open to it. Uh, the guy loves a good debate. Is there anything you haven't said already that you would have said to him in the moment? Uh, because I, I don't think that he would perceive, nor would I even say that I think he said anything particularly controversial uh, in predicting that he thinks Harmon's a proud conservative. He's 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 ran for the conservatives in past. Uh, provincially, uh, he's involved. He continues to be involved. He's been a, a volunteer in past. Um, it was it was if I understand it correctly for you, it was just the dichotomy. It was the fact that we were talking about Canadian politics and then we were talking about the Proud Boys as, as designated on this terror list. It wasn't necessarily that Harmon was drawing a line between the two. I really prefer not to speak about, you know, what individuals say and think like whom I don't know. And so I can even just like speak a little more generally, but I think there are. Um, a lot of people who are, you know, first, second generation, third generation immigrants who can say, like, we came here with nothing. And so, you know, individual achievement within capitalism is actually the way that, you know, I think I'm going to thrive. Um, this it's very common and it really works to support parties that are not uh, that are antisocial in a lot of ways. And I mean that in the sense of, you know, gutting public services that are not kind of about uplifting everybody, but rather about individual success within capitalism. Um, I, I'm happy to see that uh, our good friend, Dr. Mana Saleh is watching uh, right now. She says it's convenient to denounce racism. Uh, she says, yeah, 100 percent. But sometimes our leaders won't even do that. Um, she references the fact and, and I'll read her message. I haven't seen it. I don't know for a fact that Premier Kenny hasn't said anything, but I haven't seen him say anything 
about the recent attacks on uh, Muslim women last week in in the Metro Edmonton region. Uh, There have been several over the past couple of months, in particular, um, hijabi women. I I saw there your 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 entire posture changed uh, when I read that message from Dr. Saleh. How come? I mean, it is it is really disturbing that these incidents have happened. Um, They are the spectacular incidents of violence that of course we need to be talking about as a community uh i don't care about jason kenny denouncing this i really don't because it is not something that i need from somebody who i don't think has shown in his actions that he cares about uh you know muslim women or hijabi women and so you know but of course i mean i really feel for the people who have been attacked. And I think that we need to, as a community, again, this is about us as a community having a conversation, not looking to uh, political leaders who can say something just for opportunism. I also really appreciate uh, Dr. Munez. So hi. Before we go, and I want to thank you for your time. This has nothing to do, or maybe it does actually, I shouldn't say that. I was going to say, I don't perceive that this may have anything to do with the subject uh, or or at least the jumping off point of our conversation here. But I did see that some of our viewers this morning uh, were celebrating or were excited that you were going to be on the show. They said, hey, they said one of our keynote speakers from fem- from Feminist Friday, uh, which obviously just went a few days ago. Um, and apparently, I guess you delivered a speech there. You inspired some people. Yeah. They were excited to see that you were here. Um, I didn't witness it. I didn't take it in. I don't know what you spoke about, but <laughs> but uh, I think the name is somewhat self-explanatory. But what's it's a hashtag. What's Feminist Friday all about? And what was your message, generally speaking? So it's uh, Stacy, who you can find on Twitter. So she's the one who tweeted that. So you can see her handle. Um, and she's been organizing Zooms on Fridays. And so I talked about I talked about a kind of critique of how intersectionality is used to kind of do more than it sh- it is kind of meant to do and a critique of representative politics. So, like, don't just vote for, you know, a woman because she's a woman. Uh, you know, look at the policies. Don't support uh, people of color just because they're racialized. But, uh, you know, actually look at what they're policies and platforms and stuff are but yeah. yes feminist right it's fun it's like drinking wine and talking to people on zoom so it's, <laughs> it's a great time it's it's all we do anymore isn't it um <laughs> hey doctor thank you so much for, for first of all as mentioned reaching out second of all for making time for us today it's it's a pleasure to have you here on the show for the first time and i and i look forward to having you back uh, dr shama rangwala out of the department of humanities at york university we'll, we'll talk to you again soon yeah take care you bet I want to show you an example, Real Talkers, with apologies to those of you that are streaming the audio on Mixler that are listening to the podcast. I'll read the tweet for you. But um, Sam, if you see here on my screen, I've got this tweet from from uh, Professor Angwala here. You can follow her on Twitter at Fritzel Chat. And of course, we we link to all of our guests Twitter handles if they have them uh, every morning uh, around 8, 8, 15. I send it out from my account at Ryan Jesperson. She says, so here's what we're talking about, for example, like here's you know, more information on the right wing apparatus. If you want to go A to B to C to, you know, D and draw the lines. Uh, Proud Boys started by Gavin McInnes. Uh, McInnes, a contributor to Rebel Media. Andrew she- Andrew Shear's campaign manager, Hamish Marshall, co-founded Rebel Media with Ezra Levant. Aaron O'Toole's uh, manager of Canada Proud worked for Ezra Levant at Sun News TV. So these are, you know, so here you go. This is, you know, an example of, of what we're talking about here and the, the degrees of separation and the, the connections and they run deep. Now, I'm sure that we're going to hear from some conservatives that say, hey, listen, I'm a, I'm a conservative because I, you know, I support their tax policy. And I, and, I, and I think that, you know, Aaron O'Toole's 
um, heading in the right direction on on climate policy or whatever, or or you know these are my draws to the conservative party. I'm a I'm a pragmatic progressive person. All this talk about proud boys, I'm happy to denounce that. I you know I, I speak out loudly against people that would seek to divide our community, um, and I'm not sure that this criticism is fair. And I'd be curious to hear from you. And we'll welcome interviews like that on the show. We want to have these types of conversations, the difficult conversations. The conversations that don't necessarily wind up with everything tied up uh, in a bow and solved. That's not always going to be the case. Um, our thanks to, to Professor uh, Shama. I, I appreciate Dr. Rangwala joining us here. This might be a good time to, to read an email. I want to make sure that every show we take some time to read the emails. We, we receive hundreds and hundreds of them every week. And, and I want you to know how much we appreciate the time that you put into sharing your thoughts with us. Talk at RyanJesperson.com is where you can reach us it goes to sam and i so we make sure we get eyes on them i love this from christine who wrote in to say uh ryan two shows in a row where we talk about extremism has me a little worked up this is last week christine says you know i I convinced my husband to send our four-year-old to catholic school in september reason number one is because our uh budget just isn't working and all-day kindergarten is going to help us out a little bit. Reason number two, I want my kids to have religious literacy. I think that it's something that's needed in the world right now with extreme organizations and, and political cults emerging fast and furious. Christine says, by the way, I'm an atheist. I grew up in a secular home, but I attended Catholic school. My mom thought that, that it was the better school in town. Uh, I did learn a lot about Catholicism. Christine says, I'll admit, I probably got a bit indoctrinated, but I learned about other faiths and why people believe what they do. I was immersed in a culture that I wasn't normally part of, and it helped me understand faith and belief versus fact. Schools went secular when everybody at home was still part of a church, and they prayed at meals, and and they went to church or temple or mosque on their holy day. And and while there, they learned about faith and hope and what to do when things go bad. The church created a community. And now it seems like the church may be disappearing from society to a certain degree, but people are still looking for answers and they're still looking for community. And so they're turning to these glitzy mega churches or to proud boys or to ISIS or to QAnon. I believe that giving my kids a good sense of religious literacy will protect them from extremist groups. And although sending them to Catholic school is not ideal for our family, I know I can't teach religious literacy on my own. If my sons choose religion as a result, as long as they are accepting of and love all people, I will support them. That from Christine. That's an interesting take. Maybe I'll read this one as well. This doesn't have anything. Well, as a matter of fact, it does have to do with politics. Uh, This from an individual who does not want their name read on air, which is fine. We get a lot of those. Have you noticed how many we get? We get a lot of emails from people saying, I'm happy to lay it all out here, but please don't use my name on the air. I think we're, we're learning more and more that there's, there's a lot of people, uh, particularly in this province that are, that are inside the systems that we're reporting on that are, that are very disenfranchised with them. Yeah, that's, that's well said, Sam. Um, Oh, by the way, you know what people are calling? Can you take camera three? Is that three? Camera three is me. Yeah. Hello, it's yeah. camera three. You know it's been renamed. Oh. By, I think it was Trevor or Travis that renamed it. It's the Uncle Sam cam. Oh, boy. <laughs> the Uncle Sam cam. Um, How's your sister doing? Good. Uh, healthy baby girl named Daphne. Oh. <gasps> 
part of our family now. Daphne. I've, I've seen a couple photos. Again, Allie's a very notoriously private person, so You've warned nothing us I can share right now. We're not going to yes. see a photo on Real Talk. We're not we- going to see a photo on Real Talk yet, but uh, yes, I'm a very proud little, uncle of, of little Daphne Spivak. Little Daphne. That's wonderful. Congratulations. Uh, so we'll say that this is from Lauren. Uh, she doesn't want her real name read on air, which is fine. Uh, Lauren says, as a, a person born and raised in Ontario who's now lived in Alberta for 30 plus years, raising my family here. I take great exception to art price. You remember art price, the former CEO of Husky energy. It's actually uh, one of our most watched interviews in the history of the show. Art price saying that the former CEO of Husky energy saying the cancellation of Keystone XL is not a big deal. And don't worry about it. Um, And he explains why he talks about market capacity and, and he, he said it in a very like m- measured and kind of when he when he spells it out, you can check it even on my Twitter, um, on my profile. We posted like a two minute clip, just a little highlight of the interview. I think sixty five thousand people have watched him say, uh, you think if the United States actually thought that it was going to experience an energy shortage, that they wouldn't figure out a pipeline. He's like, the market's not there. He says that he says that Alberta should not be I'm paraphrasing uh, Alberta should not seek to, uh, you know, balance its books by expanding production capacity. He says the industry has moved on and the government should, too. It was it was quite an interview. But he did start talking about subsidies out of the gates. The interview, in my mind, it started a little slow and I didn't sort of know exactly where it was going to go. But he talked about subsidies and he said, you know, the oil industry hasn't really received a lot of subsidies. And I kind of went, well, I'm not so sure about that. And then he you can watch the interview in its entirety if you like. But it prompted Lauren to say I wasn't a big fan. And I took exception of Art Price's characterization of subsidies and his divisive rhetoric. It's an insult to my entire family and all of my friends in central Canada. Didn't central Canada help Alberta build its oil and gas infrastructure? Lauren says, that's what I learned in public school in the 1970s. Don't people remember when Petro Canada was a crown corporation? Yeah, they do. Did I say this on the show or off the air that what my grandpa, my grandpa Rudy, who was a proud engineer for Chevron, taught me what Petro Canada stood for? Did I, I think I must have. That must have been off air. You know what? I think that was in a podcast I just recorded. Mm. That, that's going to be coming out. Uh, not my podcast. I was a guest. I'll tell you about it when they're ready to talk about it. Um, my grandpa taught me when I was a kid that Petro Canada stands for Pierre Elliott Trudeau rips off Canada. That's what Petro Canada. Started. So people do remember, Lauren. They do remember that it was a crown corporation in Alberta. Let me get back to the email. She says, I, I did not mind contributing to it through my taxes because it was in the national interest. Is there no such thing anymore? Does Mr. Price really believe that his fellow citizens work less hard or are somehow taking advantage of him? Lauren says, what a mean spirited view of the country. I call bullshit. Lauren says, perhaps you could get a Canadian historian on the show to explain how different parts of the country have supported one another to succeed over the more than a century that we've been a country. Isn't that the point of confederation? That's a fascinating premise, isn't it, for a feature? She says, on an unrelated uh, note, and I wanted to read this part on the air, as a person of modest means, I wanted to donate five bucks a month on your show's Patreon. However, it was $5 US, and my, my, my bank wants to determine the exchange rate, and I don't want to give the bank any more of my money. So I want to figure out if there's another way to do it. Well, Lauren, I'm excited to tell you that now, if you go onto our Patreon, you can link to it at RyanJesperson.com. You can select Canadian currency, 
And so you should be able to make that change. We insured it. We, we pulled the levers as best we could. So you should be able to direct it to $5 Canadian. And thank you to everybody that supports this show that has joined us on this journey. You're allowing us to build our team. And, and as we uh, make our way into now February and into March and April of 2021, we're going to have some exciting announcements to share with you. We've also got a Patreon uh, benefit that's uh, going to be set for announcement in the next couple of weeks. And we're really excited about that. So more and more reasons for you to continue to support the show. Uh, wanted to remind you right now, uh, before we get to our next guests, that this is a perfect time. I know it doesn't feel this way. I know you're worried about your pipes freezing right now. I know you're worried about, you know, is your vehicle even going to start? I know you're, you're, you're learning about polar vortexes, unless you're watching in from Costa Rica or New Zealand or Vancouver. Yeah, yeah. But it's a great time of year, no matter where you are, to start thinking about reinventing your outdoor space. And the team at Eden Landscaping right now wants to let you know that they're experts in incorporating urban agriculture. They're also experts in things like swim spas and hot tubs and saunas, built-in barbecues, smokers, outdoor pizza ovens. What about a gazebo when you're allowed to have friends over to sit under and maybe enjoy some wine? What about a, a four-season plan? Is this something that you've considered before? It's what Eden Landscaping does, and it's what they do well, and they're ready to take your call and start that planning process. They've been doing this for more than 20 years, and it's their passion. You can find Eden Landscaping under the Sponsors tab at ryanjesperson.com. Get them started. They can take a look at your property by Google Earth. They can meet you over Zoom, and they can get the ball rolling on reinventing your space. Well, I'm going to be honest with you. This next subject, I don't know a ton about it. As a matter of fact, all I know is that healthcare professionals across the province are starting to sound the alarm in the context of harm reduction. There's a there's a uh, there's a petition that's out. There's a GoFundMe that's going on right now, and we thought that this is something that real talkers need to have on their radar. So it's a real pleasure uh, to welcome to the program uh, Avnish Nanda, a lawyer that practices out of Edmonton, as well as Dr. Jennifer Jackson, uh, who's a registered nurse and a professor in the Faculty of Nur Nursing at the University of Calgary. Uh, to the both of you, welcome to the show and thank you for being here. Thank you for having us. Bye. Uh, doctor, we, 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 we've, we've had the type of show where we have been all over the place. We're talking about markets. We're talking about the, the mechanisms of politics. We've been talking about a new governor general. We're talking about 911 response. And, and, and the common theme through our live comments on our hashtag, on our live chat on YouTube, people are saying, gosh, it can be tough to stay on top of everything. It can be tough to stay in the know when it comes to issues that matter. This is a perfect example, isn't it? Absolutely. And the problems that we are seeing right now, we want to make people aware of them because they make a significant difference for Albertans. So we're here to speak with you today about the injectable opioid agonist treatment program in Alberta, which is known as IOT. And the purpose of this program is to provide intensive care type of treatment for people with opioid use disorder or people with opioid addiction. And so this treatment is life-saving 
Um, I have done research on this treatment, some of which has been released today. We know that it is a clinical practice that works and the Alberta government wants to cut the program. And I appreciate that there are a lot of difficult things happening for Albertans right now, but we need to care about this because IOT creates positive benefits that ripple across the whole healthcare system. And so if we start getting rid of these kinds of programs, we're going to see knock-on effect that will affect every one of us. Okay, so what's your speculation around why the provincial government wants to cancel this? Do you think it's a, do you think it's a budget cut? Do you think it's an ideologically prompted move? What's your opinion? When I look across the different policies that the Alberta government is applying to community treatment for opioid addiction, there is a common thread. So we see that supervised consumption sites have been closed, particularly in Lethbridge, even though that site was the highest per capita use in North America, second in the world. We see that this is a community treatment facility that is also at risk of being closed. In contrast, the Alberta government wants to shift people who are receiving treatment for addiction, which is a chronic illness, to services where people stay for 30 days and they have a residential experience. However, we know that those are more expensive. Cheap, the cheapest care we can provide to anyone for any issue is in the community. So budget doesn't fit. Um, when we look at clinical outcomes, we know that the clinical outcomes we can get in the community are better than if we have to wait to address something in the hospital. So that doesn't fit. So the thing I'm left with is that this is ideological and is not based in science. So Avnish, as, as a lawyer, how, how do you become involved in this? How, how did this first wind up on your radar? Uh, Ryan, can you hear me well? I can hear you great. You bet. Uh, so this past summer, uh, a group of patients and uh, healthcare professionals who work in this clinic uh, approached me talking about what would happen to them, what would happen to the patients if this service was suspended. And uh, Ryan, I, I went through a deep dive um, of speaking with patients across Edmonton and Calgary, uh, listening to experts in um, Alberta, British Columbia, other locations to try to understand how critical um, IOT is, and to be clear, IOT is the only form of medical treatment for folks living with the most severe form of opioid use disorder. These are the folks who are most likely to die of an opioid overdose death, which in this province happens three times a day, three Albertans a day die of an opioid use disorder, uh, of, of an opioid overdose death. And what I learned was that without continued access to IOT, these patients, um, these people who look like you and me, who may be related to us, are likely going to die or experience uh, severe health impacts. And that's not a hyper hyperbolic statement. Uh, that's true. At least one patient has died since the announced closure of IOT. Uh, more will die. And, uh, you know, you know, as someone like yourself who... Uh, you know, cares about other Albertans, particularly those who are living with this condition. Um, there was an impetus on people in the community as well as myself to figure out a way to stop this closure so that 
these Albertans can continue to access this life-saving and life-sustaining medical treatment. So don't you have a, I mean, you're in, you're in court in two days, aren't you? Avnish, you're in court in a couple of days here advocating on behalf of these patients who are actually suing the government. Am I, am I characterizing that correctly? Yes, you're right. We're in court trying to get the government to allow continued access to IOT while our constitutional challenge against the government's cut is being decided. So it's a big day on Wednesday because after this March, the next month, um, the Alberta government intends to shut down this treatment. And if that happens, you have a hundred um, Albertans, maybe more, who will be without the, treat- the medical treatment they need to live. And, you know, my clients, uh, a lot of them are my age. A lot of them have come from similar backgrounds. And I just can't begin to describe to you the fear and terror in their eyes. These are folks who, you know, who's li- who lived on the streets for, for much of their lives, who experienced all forms of harm and violence that comes with living on the streets with an opioid use disorder, um, sexual violence, if you are a woman or a girl, and managed to escape all that escape all that through IOT, who provided them not only effective medical treatment, but um, sexual health supports, uh, housing, a range of other things. And now that's going to be taken away from them. And they're going to be back in the position that they were before with with the real likelihood of dying. Doctor, I I guarantee you, you know, people are going to be watching right now. And I know that both of you are saying, you know, sort of qualifying, saying, you know, at, at risk of being hyperbolic here. But when it comes down to the fact that you can make the assertion that this is a decision that will cost people their lives. What sort of evidence do you look to? I mean, I know that, that you and, and, and your colleagues have, have recently commissioned a report on this. Uh, is that somewhat unusual on its own, by the way, for you to commission your own reporters? Is that part of the course? So for our part, we did our own research here at the University of Calgary. And so I can speak to that. But in terms of thinking about other examples, we have seen there's been numerous clinical trials in this area that's the same type of research procedure that is being applied to the COVID vaccine. And we have seen that whenever IOT is withdrawn, between 13 and 20% of the people who had been using IOT have died within a year. So it's not hyperbole. This would be equivalent to saying, okay, we are going to give you a dialysis machine, you go home, figure it out yourself. Or here's a bag of chemo, you go home and you can figure it out yourself. Like if we were to look at it through that lens, saying that to other Albertans would be absolutely unthinkable. We would never consider treating someone with cancer or with renal failure like that. And part of my concern is that if the government is allowed to cut a program that is based on science and we know is working and we have strong indicators that it is saving the province money across a number of fronts, if the government can decide that no, they don't want to have this service, what's to stop them from removing other health services uh, due to stigma? So this is very concerning for these patients, absolutely, but also the potential ripple effects for other Albertans. The other thing that we know is that community health services keep people out of emergency departments. So whether it be people who go to the emergency department for an overdose 
and to get treatment for an overdose or other reasons. When we have programs like IOT, we prevent that. And so that means that if grandpa is out shoveling the snow, hopefully staying warm on a day like today, but if grandpa's out shoveling the snow, has a slip on the ice and needs to go to the emergency department, it means that grandpa will be able to get faster care because there will not be people who need overdose treatments in that emergency department. So absolutely, this is life-sustaining treatment for the people who use IOT. This also has potential consequences for anybody in Alberta who could potentially use an emergency department. Doctor, you you know, you 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 paint that you know, you do you do a good job of of creating a scenario that will I'm trying to not not come across to be too cynical. It's why I'm a little slow into the question or into my response, because what you're doing is true. Uh, you're explaining to people that, listen, when, when it comes to wait times, when it comes to ER access, you know, your grandpa that, that you know, bruised his tailbone or broke his leg uh, is going to is going to be able to get into the the ER more quickly because there won't be somebody there that's that's, you know, recovering from an overdose. And 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 what you're doing, obviously, is helping us as a society, I don't mean the words I'm about to say, but but generally speaking, in society, there are many people that don't care about the person that's experiencing the overdose. That doesn't resonate with them. If you were to say someone's fighting for their life in, in intensive care right now, or they're fighting for their life in the ER due to doing an overdose, um, people start to care when you say your grandpa might be laying in the snow and might have to wait for the broken leg, right? It's the same sort of a thing where, and Avnish, I want to ask you like you know about your argument in court and what it would look like. We can even say, and, and advocates for harm reduction have, have been saying loudly for many years that the, the fiscal case is there. It, it costs less to run a, a supervised consumption service and to fund health measures for people and to provide safe supply and clean needles and health resources. And it's going to cost us less than dispatching ambulances to back alleys where a human being is dying behind a dumpster with a needle in their arm. And even still, it doesn't seem to resonate with some people. Even the fiscal argument, which to me is important, but seems kind of cold if we have to be talking dollars and cents. But even then, it doesn't resonate. I'd like both of you to respond to this. Avnish, maybe first, because I would imagine that to a certain degree, you're going to try to be influencing a judge's perspective in a couple of days. How are you going to do it? For sure, Ryan. And the, the the good thing is, is that IOT is well studied in Canada. Uh, in fact, as part of our evidence on Wednesday, we found a um, healthcare economist who specializes or has um, researched the health savings and societal benefits from a fiscal perspective or economic perspective of IOT therapy. And he's found in British Columbia, and he says it applies likely to Alberta, that there are net savings on a society-wide level with IOT because folks who are seeking this treatment who are most likely to require intensive healthcare resources to the emergency room and other services if they're not on IOT, from from a criminal justice perspective as well, they're less likely to be involved in criminal activity to sustain their opioid use, that we're actually talking about significant cost savings uh, with IOT relative to not having it. But, but more than that, you know, I, I take your point, Ryan, that for some people it's hard to uh, wrap their head around or perhaps even empathize with someone who they hear about um, experiencing opioid use disorder or an overdose death. But I, I want people to know that the population of folks who live with opioid use disorder in Alberta 
even those who have the most severe form of this condition who are accessing IR right now, um, if people were able to see them face-to-face, talk to them, they would realize that there's a lot more similarities and differences. Um, we're talking about people who come from all walks of life, all backgrounds, who get on this track with opioid use disorder, you know, from a sports injury, let's say. One of my patients is a bit younger than me uh, in Calgary, rich, rich family. Dad was an a executive of an oil company. When he got injured in football, uh, he was given um, uh, he was given um, opioids, and it's been this very uh, terrible journey since just this descent. Because the time he was prescribed opioids, there was no real limits on how much was given. There was no awareness that there is now, and frankly, his life is ruined. He tells me now that he wish he had never had t- taken those opioids. Yeah. I've, I've got a friend who, who after a, a significant injury, refused to take his prescribed painkillers because I think he knows his personality and I think he, he knew what might happen. And instead, he chose to endure horrific pain as opposed to taking the meds. But but Avnish and you and I and I know that you'll know I'm saying this in the right spirit. I am not criticizing yeah. you. I've got a lot of love for you. You know this. But you and I have both acknowledged in past conversations. It's crappy that we even have to do this, that, that we even and I've done it on I've done it on the air multiple times saying, hey, like there are opioid overdoses in the suburbs. Like, you know, if I can, I, I maybe, maybe never said it this obviously, but rich blonde girls in St. Albert can overdose everybody like like, you know, CEOs can overdose like, you know, wealthy people in 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 religious circles can develop addictions like Jennifer. It's it's brutal that we have to because what are we saying here? What are we saying? What we're really saying is it's not just street people. It's not just indigenous people. It's not right. That's that's what we're saying without saying it. And it's brutal that we have to communicate this way to try to glean public support. I mean, I'm, I'm looking at the numbers here out of and I'm retweeting Avnish and yourself and the, and the study that you've put out. The fact that it's it's expected that up to 20 percent of existing clients could die because of the program being canceled. Those are people. Can you imagine if we said 20% of people might die with the cancellation of any other program? You think that the public would stand for it for even one second? Not a chance. And I think that's why it's important we have these conversations. And you know what? Even if it was only street people, so to speak, who were experiencing opioid use disorder, they still deserve care. Everyone deserves care. And my premise as a registered nurse is that I don't judge people, I support them and I provide care for them. And so I think that it's really hard because I honestly don't know how to tell people you need to care about others. I can understand that there are people who say, look, I don't want anybody to be harmed, but you know, things are a little bit lean right now. And I am worried about the bottom line. I want to see that, you know, I'm able to feed my family and I don't can't stand my taxes going up a whole lot right now. So I think that's part of why we try to show these different angles on these issues because all of those angles are there. It's supportive for Albertans who are experiencing a hard time. It improves clinical care outcomes. It saves money. 
if you look at it from a libertarian perspective, we can say that, you know what, this provides people with lots of options for their care. If we close IO, there's going to be fewer choices and a restriction on their freedoms. If you're socially conservative and, you know, can't stand the idea of addiction, well, but for the grace of God, there go I. I think every faith has some type of language along those lines. And you know what, even if somebody doesn't buy into all of that, I would say we have a good program in place already and the government has other priorities and leave well enough alone. Yeah, I mean, you know, if, 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 I, I just love what you just did. I absolutely love that you're saying if you're a libertarian perspective, this, if you're socially conservative, this, um, you know, I mean, you, you, can, you can even I don't mean to sort of pigeonhole this to those of the Christian faith. But I think we know that if, if Jesus was walking the earth in 2021, he'd be volunteering at soup kitchens. He'd be hanging out with the addicted and the homeless and, and sex trade workers like he did 2000 years ago. I don't need to start getting into the theology of this, but there are many arguments. Jesus would be flipping tables right now if he was around the Alberta legislature, seeing how we're managing some of these files. Um, doctor, the, the, the pandemic I've seen and, and participated in some town halls where the opioid crisis has been described as the other epidemic. Um, have you seen um, either data? I mean, have you seen actually research scientific data that would lead you to believe or anecdotal uh, evidence that the opioid crisis has been made worse, that the challenges have been exacerbated as a result of COVID-19? Yes. And this is challenging because the government of Alberta has not released new data about opioid use in Alberta since June of 2020. That's the last information we have. So those reports used to be released quarterly since about 2016 to provide updated information for healthcare professionals. And now we stalled, we haven't heard anything since June of 2020. Given the consequences of opioid use disorder for Albertans, I think that that is really unacceptable that the data is being restricted in the first place. Based on that information we did have at that time, 2.5 more people had died from opioid use disorder in Alberta than COVID. And so if that trend has held, it is a reasonable projection that more people have died in Alberta related to opioids than COVID today. Just to be clear, so you're saying two and a half times more people, there have been two and a half times more fatalities due to the opioid crisis as opposed to COVID-19 in Alberta. Yes, at the time the data was released, the rates were one COVID death per day and 2.5 opioid deaths per day. And is that a break from the norm with regards to withholding that data, withholding that information? How, How unusual is that? And what do you think is prompting that? I can't mind read, but I know that previously the province was able to put out those reports quarterly. Hmm. So I'm not sure if that infrastructure was already available. I'm not sure why that information can't be made publicly available at this time. And given that, as you say, we have what some people refer to as a syndemic, a synergistic pandemic of both opioid use disorder and COVID-19, this is critical information. And, you know, we should be having regular briefings on this just as we do with COVID-19. And it also, unfortunately, makes logical sense 
because I think if people reflect, I mean, I certainly wouldn't want to speak for everyone, but I know maybe there's been a couple extra beers when COVID-19 has been really stressful, maybe an extra glass of wine at the end of the day, because it's just a little bit hard to cope right now. And that's reasonable for everyone. So if we look at that and then think, okay, that's maybe the case for us, for people that are already systematically excluded from our society, how much harder is this to deal with? Yeah. And in fact, the IO program has been a leader in Alberta in ensuring that their services have converted to mobile options and they have transformed to make sure that people can still get care. And I think, you know, it calls on all of our humanity to reflect on how challenging things are and to look and say it makes sense unfortunately that if people are struggling that there are higher risks that systematic exclusion that you touched on is so huge uh my brother works in harm reduction in vancouver and i've talked to him about that about how how, uh, shame is such a huge part of this and there's a real self-awareness on behalf of a lot of people who use drugs and so the, the 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 inclination to exclude themselves from social interaction is so massive and, and that's why he'll advocate so strongly for things like supervised consumption services, because like you've talked about, it, it's a community hub. It creates a connection that can lead to people accessing things like health care um, that can allow them in time uh, to, to really make uh, dramatic improvements in their overall health and well-being. Um, Avnish, I want to draw people's attention to the fact that there's a the GoFundMe out there. You're doing all right on this, by the way. Um, you've got $60,000 set as your goal uh, here, and uh, you've raised uh, closing in on twenty four grand here. If I know anything about real talkers, you'll probably see that bump up a little bit as you're asking people to to help stop the premier from shutting down IOT. Uh, what do people need to know? We, we typically like to end an interview with a call to action. You know, the last thing I want is for a viewer to say, well, what the hell am I supposed to do about this? So what are they supposed to do about this, Avnish? Sure. Uh, that looks like a lot of money, but um, the Alberta government is actually seeking costs against these IO patients if they win. So $20,000. Yeah, they're trying to get the legal costs against these people who are in very tough financial and life situations. So the first $20,000 is towards potentially covering in a cost award that would have to be paid to the government of Alberta. So it's really not a lot. But in terms of call to action, I would just implore uh, your listeners and your viewers to go and contact their MLAs, um, write letters, uh, pick up the phone, because there's no good reason for the government better to do this. Uh, Even from a funding perspective, it's my understanding that the federal government has committed funds towards this program. Um, This is just, um, this is ideological. And I, I, it's just really regrettable that so many Albertans will die because of this. And it's entirely preventable. Do you, I, I wish that I could give the uh, viewer credit. I don't remember who it was, but I saw somebody earlier this morning. We were, we were talking about something completely different, by the way. We were talking to mayors and fire chiefs about 911 dispatch being centralized and, and, and the fact that they were saying, in that case, some people are going to die because of this, uh, another policy change. And, and one of our viewers said, um, calling and emailing and i don't and i agree with the spirit of what they're saying i don't totally agree and 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 maybe they don't totally mean it but they said you know calling and emailing isn't going to do anything because their inboxes are already so jammed with people that are so upset about so many things and it's really not making a dent The, the viewer said what we need to do is continue to pursue and go after this government in court that's what you're doing 
Do you agree to a certain extent that, I mean, for a government that's not consulting, not listening, emails only go so far. I mean, I wouldn't even be surprised if half these MLAs have their out of office turned on and have done so for the last number of months. hundred percent. Um, I've been involved with a couple of lawsuits now where uh, even in response to the lawsuit, the government backed down to some extent, uh, even in Iowa, they made some concessions that mm. it doesn't go all the way, but it's, it shows that courts work and they're serving their purpose. Uh, to the two of you, I'm, I'm grateful that you've made the time to talk to us. Uh, Dr. Jackson, thank you so much for, for putting this on our radar. I'll admit it's something I've been trying to stay on top of, but in this news cycle, it's such a challenge. Yet your advocacy has continued, as has yours, uh, Avnish, and, and we appreciate both of you making yourselves available on the show today. I want to let Real Talkers know that I've, I've retweeted uh, some information that the two of you are putting out. For those that want to get involved, get engaged, find the link to the GoFundMe, etc., uh, thanks for talking to us this morning. Thank, Thank you, Ryan. you very much. That's uh, Dr. Jennifer Jackson, uh, PhD and a professor, a registered nurse as well, uh, out of the University of Calgary, Avnish Nanda, who practices law uh, here out of Edmonton. He'll be in court on Wednesday on behalf of these IOT patients. Uh, the chat has been uh, busy. Brenna, I noticed Brenna's comments throughout have been really solid. I'll just read one here. But she says, you know, treating addiction like a health issue as it is uh, helps people to recover and survive. Why do we throw away people who struggle with addiction? We need everybody to help us face the challenges ahead. Lynn says a lot of people believe that drug addiction is a choice, not an illness, which is totally true. It's totally true that people believe that. Alice says, you know, this government consults law enforcement and, and community members with concerns about crime. Um, talking about supervised consumption, consulted no providers, no mental health professionals, no clients. Is it Chaim? Am I pronouncing that correctly? It's either Chaim or Chaim uh, says uh, we should be going after some of the doctors here and go after big pharma to pay for these sites, to pay for these clinics. Wouldn't be surprised to see more legal action. I mean, Big Pharma has been in the crosshairs for quite some time. Yeah, I mean, you know, here's Brenna again. Portugal turned around. Portugal's a fascinating study. Uh, turned around a huge problem with, with heroin use and narcotics by decriminalizing and offering methadone and other therapies to as many people as they could, and it worked. It's seen as a global example. It is. How about this from Hope? This is a heartbreaker. I noticed that Hope... Uh, had said earlier this morning that I, she was really looking forward to this conversation. She says, my brother died by suicide uh, as a drug user. Hope, I'm so sorry to hear that for your family's loss. Hope says, I wound up on opioids due to a back surgery, and they are horribly addicting. I was able to transition to a different pain med, but I was certainly dependent. That from Hope. I mean, there's firsthand testimony on this. Many of you are saying you need to follow the money on this. Cindy says, you know, private treatment centers, right? Some of you are pointing out that Jason Kenny's brother is involved in, in a treatment center. You can read about him. You can Google him. I, I don't think, I mean, I don't know if this government's doing this all because Jason Kenny's brother has a center, but I, but I will say there is absolutely and without a doubt an ideological influence to this, right? The idea, uh, for some people, the idea of a, a, a drug user, right, attending some sort of a facility that's paid for with public funds, getting access to a needle. And you'll see, here, here's the thing, like, you know, if, if we have people that are watching right now that are diabetics, this is not a shot at you, but I've heard people write in and say, you know, how on earth are these drug users getting clean needles when I, as a diabetic, have to pay for my needles? 
And I've always sat there and said, you know what? Maybe we should pay for I don't know much about that. I should learn more about that. And maybe we as a society should pay for your needles. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't provide clean needles for everybody else, right? Because the diabetics aren't getting their needles. These people who use drugs don't get needles. And so we have, what, unmitigated spread of HIV. We have other diseases being spread. It's completely unhealthy. It's not a safe practice. It's preventable. Relatively speaking, it's a manageable cost. There are all these reasons. The, the idea of somebody showing up to, to, to tap into a safe supply. In other words, you'll hear the politicians that would oppose this call it, you know, free drugs, right? Drugs that you paid for out of your taxes. The, it's just completely unpalatable. The idea that, that, that someone could come in, you know, someone that's probably not even working, right? Somebody that doesn't even have a job is going to be able to show up and get free drugs that I paid for and a free needle and get high. And then if they believe all the noise from people that don't deal in facts, the people that, that peddle in fear, you know, these people who use drugs, they'll use other words for them. We'll leave the facility all high and then they're going to what? They're going to start going through your backyard, right? They're going to start casing out your house, trying to break into your house, right? It's, 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 it's ideological division uh, and it's unfortunate because lives are at stake. I feel like I'm picking up, um, Sam, if I'm reading your body language that you may have an opinion on this, but I don't want to put you on the spot if you don't. Uh, I, I think on your last comment there, I just, I, my opinion is I don't know if I can eye roll any harder. Yeah, your whole notion. posture changed. Yeah. Now, I just, I mean, the idea that like, okay, fine, you want to, you want to go down that rabbit hole of I'm paying for your free drugs, which you're not, you're going to pay for them to be incarcerated, you're going to pay for them to be in an emergency room, you're going to pay for the social supports that are going to pick them up, and, and this, this jobless drug user that you like to malign so much might actually be able to get a drug if they had access to a safe or <laughs> might actually be able to get a job if they had access to a safe consumption site might actually be able to get access to the supports that lead like becoming clean is such a hard job. Oh, it's a and and when you're when your whole life scenario doesn't have stable housing doesn't have stable supports doesn't have the stuff that we privileged people take for granted and then you know whine about when our taxes are going towards supporting these drug users fuck all you guys oh gee, whoa okay uh, there you go that's my take quit whining it saves money and more importantly it saves lives okay sam brooks <laughs> that was a first i love it you got a little passion there i love it say i, what you, I choose my spots carefully. yeah you do pick your spots say what you mean mean what you say people that tuned in for two hours and 13 minutes got to hear you drop i think your first f-bomb in the history of real talk um thanks for the candor appreciate it uh, you can let us know what you make of this. Th this is a conversation where I feel like, you know, we, we talk about these calls to action. We want to give you something to think about or walk with through the day. And I feel like it's a long list. You've got a long list of assignments today, Real Talkers. And uh, as we continue to to uh, endeavor to talk about things that matter and make positive impacts in our community. Uh, Travis says this government sees drug addiction as a moral failing, not a health issue. Uh, so they don't believe they need to treat it as such. Brenna Bax says, I feel sick when I hear arguments that homeless people or people that are addicted don't contribute. You know, they don't contribute to taxes or to labor participation. Thus, they don't deserve treatment. Is being a worker the only doorway to compassion? Yeah, this I mean, this is just this this live chat is something else, by the way. I'm so I so appreciate all of you that, that take the time to. Yeah, the, the chat came alive with your comments, Sam. Everybody's everybody's cheering for you here. So. 
um, we're, we're just going to leave this with you. I'm, I'm sort of feeling right now like, you know, you, you'd love, love to be able to bring this to some sort of re- resolution. But, um, hey, sometimes this show is our, the biggest thing that we can do is is just put stuff on our radar and make sure that it's not being ignored. And we'll continue to do that. We do that in part uh, by having you tell us what matters to you most. And there's a number of different ways that you can do that. You can send us an email to talk at ryanjesperson.com. Um, sometimes the, the most important emails that we receive are from people that are saying, I haven't heard one word of this on the show. Are you guys even aware of this? And we go, wow, how has that been flying under the radar? That's how we make a lot of our editorial decisions. Another way that you can have a say on our show is by taking part and participating in our question of the week. And it's presented by Y Station every Monday. We roll out a new question of the week. And if you check out RyanJesperson.com, you'll see our question of the week this week. Lately, we've been seeing some upheaval and even, dare we say, shenanigans in the financial markets. It got us thinking, what are your habits? How do you work with money? How do you invest and who do you trust? This week's Real Talk, Get Real, question of the week is all about the Benjamins and what you think is happening in our financial markets right now. And we thank you in advance for participating there. We'd also like to say a huge thank you to the team at Alta Moving and Storage. You know, this is your local solution to cutting the stress out of the equation of moving. Polling shows that moving is identified by most people as a top three most stressful event. It's right up there with things like public speaking, but it doesn't have to be that way. The team at Alta Moving and Storage have perfected the art of these pod-style containers. They drop them off at your house. They come up with a plan with you. When do you need it? How long do you need it? What are you using it for? Do you need extra labor? They can provide that too. And they want to make sure that you're moving process your experience is a positive one so if you're going to require some short-term storage if you're going to put some things away in long-term secure storage that's their business too you can find them online at alta moving and storage you can check out altastorage.ca or of course follow the link at ryanjesperson.com we're also very proud to be partnering up with the team at kubi energy you know monday's a very special day for our partnership with the team at kubi because they help us get our week started off right especially on a show like this where we've been talking about some heavy stuff so we're going to get into that in just a second but i do want to remind you uh, we got a couple emails from real talkers over the weekend saying we've connected with kubi and we're planning our install for the spring whether you're in bc or alberta they've got western canada covered with two head offices They're Tesla certified and all of their installers are journeyman electricians. So, you know, the job's done right. Plus, they handle all the paperwork. They take the hassle out of it. The solar install at Kubi Energy. Of course, Kubi Energy each and every Monday helps us start our week with a smile as they present positive reflections. These are things that sam and i noticed through last week these are submissions videos and photos that you sent us and we want to hear your stories too want to tell the story of the person that turned your day around that put a smile on your face that maybe paid forward an act of random kindness you can submit them to talk at ryanjesperson.com this first one made me smile the tweet from dan levy a nine-time emmy winner who did an amazing job just this last saturday a couple nights ago on saturday night live retweeting his mom deb who tweeted this goes out to the bully punks at camp wtf who made life miserable for a certain cabin mate back in the summer of 96 just because he was different well after all these years i have just seven words to say to you 
live from New York. It's Saturday night. I love that. A mom's pride there. That's Danny Levy's mom. How about this one from Sarah Mack? Of course, in parts of Canada right now, frigid temperatures, and it has some of you experimenting with science. Sarah sent us this video in frigid cold trying science on for size check this out this is so very cool sarah new real talkers would love to see this this. yeah how's that i know for everybody listening on the podcast you're gonna have to check out our youtube channel if you want to see what sarah did with boiling water in the freezing cold how about this from sheets who knew it would make our day to see their four-legged family member tuned in for the real talk round table we love it knowing that humans and animals are digging up and putting out what we're putting out. We love that and love that photo from Sheets. Thanks so much. This was from Gordon. Gordon, a friend of ours in Lesser Slave Lake, who's invited us to do a remote show from his ice fishing hut. Sounds pretty good to me. Sam, what do you think? You think we could maybe hop on a couple snowmobiles and... As long as we oh, can I'd get down. as long as we can get LTE signals, we should be able to do a show from Gordon's Fishing Hut, don't you I'd think? Say so. That is just a stunning. I, say, I see a satellite sky. dish mounted on it. Yeah, so I know. Tap into something there. Tap into satellite, and what do we do if we get a bite on the line? Though we'll have to just. Well, everybody can wait. It's 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 real talk. Everybody, we, can, we 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 hook the fish in and we uh, we it, grill it well, on then, air. Then it's real talk. Like yeah. oh, re- oh, sorry, I can't help myself. That's great. No, nope, that's great. Mayor Alana Natchew. I love this. She's a friend of the show. She's been on Real Talk before. And uh, here's Mayor capturing from her beautiful, beautiful. I mean, look at that. Sturgeon County, the, the, the Northern Lights, the Aurora Borealis. Mayor with either a steady hand or a tripod. I don't know what it is, but nailing a couple beautiful shots. Your worship. Thank you for sharing those with us. Uh, Bunsen and Beaker were back at it. Our favorite science dogs out of... Red Deer, Alberta. Check this out over the weekend. Love this from Mr. Zed, who's, you know, their human companion. He's been on the show before, too, but we know the dogs are the stars. Look at this capture. Isn't this stunning? If you're listening on the podcast, check out the YouTube. But this is the coolest thing I've ever seen. Sam, (laughs) I wonder how you make this happen. You probably have to prop up the fork, let the noodles fall before they freeze, eh? Beaker's expression is so perfect in this. It's just, uh, and then then there's Bunsen. Such a good dog, leaving the noodles alone. Perfect. And why don't we leave with a beautiful capture? That is so neat. A beautiful capture from our pal Chris Sturwald, who plays drums on the title track of Real Talk's Tunes. Well, it turns out he's got a, a pretty beautiful eye as well. Furnace exhaust art. And uh, beautiful beer in my backyard on Saturday. Oh, Chris did. Yeah, okay, did. well, yeah. there you go. Uh, Chris Sturwald, Furnace Exhaust Art. Of course, you can send us your material to be considered for positive reflections by sending an email to talk at ryanjesperson.com. Make it a great Monday. Thanks for joining us, and we'll talk to you again tomorrow at 8.30 Mountain Time.